on our way to heaven, we shall not be moved. On our way to heaven, we shall not be moved. Just like a tree that's standing by the waterside, we shall not be moved. We shall not, we shall not be moved. We shall not, we shall not be moved. Just like a tree that's standing by the waterside, we shall not be moved. Welcome to Seth Nissan episode 258. It's me, Gary Payne, and it's course. It's the Prophet's Car Royley. Not sure what our small talk could be this girl. Maybe it could be food and what we're up to the weekend. Did you enjoy any Sunday ham? I didn't have a Sunday ham. It actually was the only thing on the menu where I did go for food and I wasn't in the mood for it. I wasn't in the mood for the bacon, Prof. Um, I went with the beef quesadillas. No, quesadillas. What's the other thing? What's the other Mexican thing that they have? Beef quesadillas, I think that's what, that's what it was. So I went with that. I was happy enough with the prof. Mm, did, um, you, did you eat it or Enchiladas, that's what it was. Jaden had the quesadillas. So I went for the enchiladas. And I was very, very happy with the choice. But um, yeah, prof, the small talk. There could be plenty. But we move on. And we look back on our trip to the Brandywell in Derry. 1-1 one, one draw. And we've our final round of the 16. Oh God, prof, the quiz, the quiz with Dylan Watson, Johnny Kenny. And our author series continues with John Dorney, a historian of the Irish War of Independence and Civil War, and another instalment of In Memoriam, packed show, prof, my dad, and six Rovers supporting sons remember their fathers. This quiz is my favourite quiz of all time. Depends your point of view here. It's either going to be your favourite or it's going to be make you the angriest ever. I think some people are going to be flinging their earphones across the room on this one. But, um, yeah, no, it's a cracker. Bit of a... Bit of an academic feel this week because we we are heading to a uh, campus on UCD after all. So we got the historian talking the Irish Civil War a hundred years ago, and we've got this quiz between players. Some of them have sort of history and Irish questions thrown in there. One is a former student of UCD. How much you learned there? Questionable. Neither of them come across as who? who? Didn't what? Neither of them came across as particularly. Academical, uh, I'll be honest, but thank God, Gare, they are good at football. Yes. And in memoriam, my dad includes Andy Myler, the manager of UCD. I actually remember when his dad passed. I think he managed quite close to the time as well. I think he actually took charge of UCD when it happened. That was remember, two years ago. That was, that was the Mark Bertram yes. Waterford playoff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember it well. Yeah. His dad passed. Mark Bertram was in the crowd, am I right? At Richmond, yeah. 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 Um, yes, so last week's quiz and fan interview So it went down well, Prof um, The quiz is like the, It's the best thing ever at this stage <laughs> Harry is just knocking it out of the park He's superb The players are feeling it though 
they're talking about this and they're like who's up next with Harry you can tell that they're all really into it they're buying into it big time especially when we're at the quarters now it's uh, serious business time so they're interested in who who they're up against and we do call out the quarterfinal lineup at the end of this Um, the fan interview with Kieran Roddy I uh, got loads of feedback. Loads of people just contacting me saying they really enjoyed that one because, like I said, they, in the past they have been a bit somewhere a bit boring, but uh, not this one. And people are saying, "Who is interviewing who?" That's what I was going to say. When <laughs> when's the actual interview? Because he this is this one was probably on the Dairy Podcast. I won't lie, he caught me off guard with his questions, but um, just made it. Better. Who would you take off the Dairy Squad? Yeah. <laughs> Well, I retract. Um, I said Duffy, and then he said, "Would you not pick Mar?" And I said, "Well, I guess because Manus is retiring." But I think I might take that back here because once again, Mar getting absolutely nowhere near a penalty. One of no. the worst goalkeepers I've seen <laughs> at trying to save a penalty. Uh, we also have R.I.P. Merrill's Twitter, the twerp. Poor old Merrill, <laughs> the twerp. foot in it, didn't he? The twerp. It's <laughs> a great saying, isn't Even it? Even he loved that. He said that was phenomenal. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well, Gary, he went after Russell Brand and the far right, all in one tweet, and basically mm. everyone he mentioned in the tweet did reply, like yeah. everyone in Ireland. Uh, Government-funded podcast. <laughs> Throw some of that fun their way, will you please? Oh, what did someone say to, that he uh, he live live streams live stream injections on Instagram? <laughs> Government-funded podcast is my show of the week. Oh, when, when's your booster boot liquor? Booster bootlicker, ah, oh, poor old Merrill. At least it's entertaining, anyway. Yeah. Um, we also have. Um, you were suggesting this, Gareth, that we get on Neil O'Donoghue, uh, more commonly known as Con O'Donoghue, because he was the last Irishman to play in the NFL until um, what's the what's the new guys? Oh, Daniel Whelan. So Daniel Whelan's from Bray. Um, Neil O'Donoghue was from Clondalkin. So until Whelan. Uh, who was actually the last Irishman to play in the NFL and Jim Conroy has become fascinated by this it was a story I was aware of already because it is fascinating yeah it was on there was a big piece I'm done on the 42.ie a few years ago and I read that um, but it's come up against come again now obviously and he was interviewed in the Irish Times and Jim was like remembering when he played for us he played for us in 1971-72 season and he reckons he's the tallest player he's ever seen in the League of Ireland <laughs> 6 foot 6 and every time he'd read a report of him, it was always the same description. The gangly O'Donoghue. Gangly. Gangly striker, 6 foot 6 So he scored three league goals first in that 1971-72 uh, season. And uh, and he was the tallest kicker in NFL history as well. Played for the Buffalo Bills, Tampa Bay Buccaneers, St. <laughs> Louis Cardinals. So Are they, they all teams he actually played for? Or are you just saying random teams? No, they're, they're the teams he played for. Um, so yeah he is someone we are uh, pursuing at the moment because he has done a few written interviews but I've never heard him on a podcast or at least I've never heard him speak about his football career Irish football career yes so there you go definitely watch this space prof mm-hmm. um, Barry young Barry the defector from the Tifties bus can someone tell me why they haven't brought back the league cup prof tell him why I don't know we don't know <laughs> I don't think we can fit it in at this stage well we'll talk about our fixture congestion in a while or the, f- the fixture pile up slash congestion slash gap week of like it's it hasn't been played since Covid like how much change has the FAI undergone since then Europe is more important than ever yeah 
like reschedule fixtures managers are and teams are at war with each other over scheduling so I do like the idea just don't want the hassle yeah I do like the idea of a cup you could play youngsters in though that's why I don't necessarily mind the Leicester Senior Cup and the League Cup I think I think the early round should be played at the start of the season rather than friendlies Mm. Um, it's definitely something but like you said I think we're coping quite well without the League Cup at the minute, if you introduced more fixtures and you're trying to shoehorn random League Cup fixtures in to the current schedule, I, I can't imagine it would go down well. So, If you look back in the 90s, uh, sort of maybe early 90s as well, the League Cup used to be a group stage. So they played three games as part of your pre-season oh, okay. uh, fixtures. And then you go straight into the, the quarters. That I think, doesn't maybe. make, that's not too mm. crazy to think. There you go. Um, um, and on that note, Cozy Hoop on Twitter sent us in this question. Has there been one Roberts player to win the League, FAI Cup and League Cup with the club? And I did know the answer straight away. It was Alan O'Neill. Because I remember him saying when he came on the podcast, when he came back in 93, 94, he had unfinished business. Because mm. that was the only medal he didn't have. Good man, Alan O'Neill. We also had uh, just kind of connect them back to the quiz with Jack Byrne and Gaffney AC Milan were tonked 5-1 by rivals Inter Milan yeah and who was in the score she but the Turkish fella as Jack says Shalanoglu <laughs> that was the winning answer wasn't it yeah it was yeah. Um, I watched that one myself and I had anticipated a Newcastle win yesterday but unfortunately that fell fell scored a straw Barney, yeah. Barney went over didn't he yeah we had a couple of hoops over there and um Apparently very tough to get out of the San Siro mm. after a game. So um, I'm not too sure how long that's going to go on, Prof. It's been slated to be demolished, but I think there was a plan to save it there recently. There was some sort of um, some sort of news news release there recently about it. I'm not too sure if it's getting demolished or not. Never did get our friendly, did we? No, San, no. Zero. I totally forgot about that. We, we promised that. But yeah, not a good weekend for fans of uh, AC Milan, Gary. Do you, do you know any? Do you know any fans of AC Milan? Oh, there's a few, I think, yeah. There's one maybe a gravel-voiced inner-city <laughs> individual who might not be too happy. Two telly Tuesday didn't go Two down well. Two telly Tuesday. Uh, Ireland's women's team press conference, Prof. Um, eventful. Well, I've, I've written there... Have you ever seen anything like that? have you ever seen anything like that a player coming out and absolutely slaughtering the previous manager I, I, I couldn't believe it um, it was coordinated as well it was a coordinated attack on an ex-employee so I've, I, I, can only, I can only imagine what it was like in the dressing room and on the training ground um, very very it's, have you, like I said like you said have you seen a situation like this before I can't. I can't think of it. Um, interesting to see who goes in next. Who would be willing to go into that environment, or is the vo- vo- it. does that environment still exist? Would that not be off-putting for the next manager? It's very possible. Just going on Twitter, just out of curiosity, I just I read all the quote tweets, and a lot of them were saying the same thing. This team is so unlikable. Now, I'm not saying that's my opinion, but I mean that's just has been the reaction to that conference. They were like, does not paint the players in a good light. The way she went about that. I don't know. There you go. It's a tricky one anyway. Um, yeah, so up next, Prof, we have Johnny versus Dylan in the quiz. 
Welcome back once again to Questions from the East and the Podcast Quiz. I'm Harry Moore, your quiz master for today. And our last matchup in the round of 16 will be Dylan Watts versus Johnny Kenny. So welcome, lads. Thank you. Hi. Um, so I asked Jack Byrne and Rory Gaffney this question. They both said the 2-0 win bows in Dame Mount earlier on in the season. Why are your lads' favourite moments from the season? If you had to pick one, which one would it be? Go on, Danny. I'll take it first. No, I'll take it first. Go ahead. No, you go first, I think. Um, favourite moments of the season so far. Um, it's tough to say, really, at the moment. Um, we obviously still have the league to play for now at this rate. So, I'd say probably the best is to come. So, if we can get our hands on our trophy, that will be the, the best moment of the season. Okay, what about you, Johnny? And um, maybe Dundalk, our first win of the season. That was a sweet enough win. First, first win of the season, four nil, something results. Um, I enjoyed that one myself. When so here's the rules for the quiz: the first player to get five correct answers wins and advances into this quarterfinals. I'll take turns asking you questions, switching between football and general knowledge and you have 20 seconds to respond. If your answer is wrong, then your opponent is allowed to steal. The profit here is always to keep time and keep score. If neither Dylan nor Johnny can reach five points after we've gone through our entire pool of 20 questions, then whoever is ahead at the time is declared the winner. If somehow it's still a draw in the end, I have a question here for you, which will be used as a tiebreaker. It also determines who gets to go first, which could be an advantage like a coin toss in a penalty shootout. So here's your tiebreaker question. Whoever gets it right, or whoever is the closest to the number, goes first. So Dylan, you'll tell us your answer, then we'll hear yours, Johnny. Okay, so the question is, Jim Crawford, who is Johnny's manager for the Ireland under-21s, was once the interim manager of Shamrock Rovers. What year was he in charge of the hoops? Um, okay, over to you, Johnny. What should you go for? Chasm one. Chasm one. This is going to go one higher. Safety. Twenty. 2014. 2014. You're both incorrect, but I think, Johnny, you're you're the closest to the answer. It's 2008. Who's closest? Mm. It is you, Johnny. Yep, six years. And Dylan, you were seven years off. So, oh, Johnny, gosh. you're going to start the uh, quiz. I didn't want to go first anyway. <laughs> this is crucial, Dylan. You'll probably want to go first. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But here you go, over. Johnny. The three right. Irish players to score a Premier League hat-trick before Evan Ferguson were Robbie Keane, Jonathan Walters and who? Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, <Luke>. um, <laughs> do you know what to <laughs> You'd want to get this one, man. You'd do you have an answer, Johnny? David McGolder. 
That is incorrect. So it's over to you, Watsy. Chance to score. Um, I have no idea. I was going to say that. I was going to to be honest with you. Um, Premier League hat-trick. Roy Keane, maybe? No. I'm sorry, that's incorrect. It's Leon Best. So, (laughs) this one's for you now. Ireland international striker Troy Parrott recently joined which club? My days. Um, Preston? That's incorrect. Over to you, Johnny, now. (laughs) That's actually unfair, that question. That's Johnny's boy. I don't know the answer, but I know I like the league. Um... That's not good. No. <laughs> some mm. Rotherdam or something. A few more seconds, Johnny. You're on the clock. Rotherdam. you got to take that answer. Rotherdam. Wrong. We're, we're going to need their, their first name here, I think. Of the club. No, I, I don't know the first name to ask. Um, okay. I'll let you decide that one, Harry. What do you think? A point or no? No. I'm not sure. I'm sorry, Johnny. It's just, I think there's another Dutch club, Sporta Rotterdam. Yeah, okay. So he could be going with that one. So I'm not sure. I was going with the other one. I was going with the other one. I might might ball this one. Excelsior Rotterdam. I don't think I got that right. We can't give him that. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Johnny, this one's for you now. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't review he can't refuse is a line from what movie? So I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. <laughs> uh, ask Watsy, I don't know. <laughs> Any answer, Johnny? No, no, like... no answer for me, no answer. Okay, right, Watsy oh, now. I think I know this movie. Can you do like a little accent now? No, 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 no. <laughs> I can only give away the question, John. Uh, Dylan, no one else. <sighs> okay, I'm gonna make an offer. Can't refuse. Oh, Jesus Christ! Have to call time here shortly. Uh, maybe I don't know. Moneyball. No, the answer is the Godfather. Okay. I am. <laughs> now. Dylan, chance to make a nil though. Okay, yeah, it's been a good start so far. Uh-huh. Linger is a song by which Irish band? The Linger. Oh, sorry, Linger. Linger. Sorry, apologies. Sorry. Linger is a song by which Irish band? Yeah. The Cor- the Coronas. Incorrect, Dylan. So it's over to you, Johnny. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, <laughs> oh, Jesus Christ! What's the song again? Uh, Linger, made by an <laughs> Irish band. <laughs> Falling on it, like cheating. I don't, I don't know. Okay, any answer, Johnny? Okay, the answer is the cranberries. Okay, right. lads, come on, we have to get a point. Some, <laughs> come on. It'll be a long one, lads. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's gonna be a time. I run out of questions. <laughs> um, Johnny Puskas was the all-time top goal scorer of which country? Germany. 
Incorrect, Johnny. Come on, over to you, Dylan. Fine, Alex. Hungry. Yeah. Dylan, you've got a correct point. Well done. We're off and running. Well done. Uh, um, chan- chance to make it. Yeah. Um, Dylan, chance to make it two here. Who was the manager of the Liverpool team that won the UEFA Champions League in 2005, coming back from a 3-0 deficit against AC Milan to win on penalties? So who managed Yep, that's correct. Dylan, well done. 2-0. He was well okay. asking the Shamrock Rovers manager's name. Sorry? <laughs> I got it right, you man. <laughs> I know. All right. Next one. This is for you. this is for you, Johnny. Tom Cruise is a member of which religion? Jesus, you're really testing me with these questions. <laughs> I don't know. Um... Have a guess, Johnny. The card time there. Yeah, it's time. Dylan, Steel. Christian. No, it's Scientology. Okay. Um, (laughs) You you can make a tree here, though, Dylan. What was the first animal on the moon? First animal on the moon. First animal. Ash? No, that's incorrect. Over to you, Johnny. Dog? Yes, Johnny, you've got a point. Well done. <laughs> oh, Two one. Go on, you, Johnny. Sorry, you have a chance to level it here. Um, yeah. Johnny, Lionel Messi is the captain of Inter Miami. Which Spaniard is vice captain? Busquets. Johnny, that's correct. It's two off. Let's go. What an easy question. What an easy question. Dylan, you can take the lead again, though. Name the two Insagi brothers their first names. Okay. Um, I don't want to give away. I know one, Filippo Insagi, and... Oh. People, people. <laughs> no. I'm sorry. No, that's incorrect, Dylan. So it's over to you, Johnny. You know one of them. Robert. Sorry. Robert. No, that's incorrect. Filippo and Simeo and Simeone in Zaggy. Oh, hey. oh, <laughs> Still two all. Johnny, when is yeah. U.S. Independence Day? Independence Day, US Independence Day. The exact date? Uh, yeah. No. Come on, Johnny. <laughs> no, I don't know. Okay, any answer? Yeah, 12th of July? Watsy, that's incorrect. It's the 4th of July. <laughs> that's incorrect there 
Come on, lads. So we, only have many questions left. we only have a few more questions. <laughs> Did it. How many? We only we have six, seven left to go, so <laughs> hey Dylan. Which Irish province has the fewest counties? Connacht. That is correct. Well done, Dylan. Three, two. Okay. okay. Johnny, chance to level. How many points did Ireland earn in the group stages of Euro 2012? Five. That's incorrect. So it's over to you, Dylan. Twenty twelve was it? Yeah, Euro twenty twelve. Mm-hmm. I was on the bottle in twenty twelve. Um, I'm gonna say. How many did you say, Johnny? Johnny five. said five. Four. A few more seconds here. Four. Is that your Four. answer? Um, yeah. You're both incorrect. We did slightly worse. We got zero points out of Euro 2012. Okay. Um, Dylan, chance to make a 4-2. Yeah. Where are Shakhtar Donetsk based? Ukraine. <laughs> that is correct. Well done, Dylan. Point to you. 4-2 now. Jesus. <laughs> I, know, I, know, I know your favourite player now, Harry. I know your favourite player. <laughs> Johnny, get this one and you're you're back in it. How long is the term of an Irish president? Three years. Johnny, that's incorrect. Over to you, Dylan. Chance Shock. to steal and win it. It's, um, I haven't a clue. How many did you say three? <laughs> yeah. Come on, Dylan. Two years. Um, how many? Two. Oh, two. Incorrect. It's seven years. Bit longer. Two. So, but Dylan, you I can was still... slow, so I get the point. <laughs> yeah, one more go. Um, Dylan, this one's for you. Now you can win. You can win it. The troubles okay. in Northern Ireland were brought to an end in 1998 with the signing of what document? The, you know this one, Johnny? No. <laughs> I wasn't even born. Things happened before you were born, Johnny. Friday, Friday agreement. Dylan, that's correct. Well done. You've won it now. Yeah. Well done, well Dylan. Easy work. Easy work. Congratulations. 5-2. 5-2, yep. Well done, yeah. Dylan. Into the next Thank round, you. into the quarterfinals. Easy um, work. <laughs> we were... If you hadn't got any of the next four questions I had lined up, we would have been done. We would have run out, so... <laughs> you were very... Anyway, unlucky, Johnny. Well done, Dylan. Um, I have Thank the you. quarter... I have the quarterfinal matchups here, though, if you want to listen to them. This is the last round of 16 game. So it's been confirmed the round of 16 draws. So, Dylan, you bet Johnny. So you'll play Gary O'Neill. Okay, nice. In the next round. Aaron Green will be playing Marcus Poom. Graham Burke will take on Simon Power. And Jack Byrne will play Lee Grace. 
So Perfect. they're the quarterfinals matchups. Good matches there. Perfect. Mm. Best of luck, Dylan. All right. You deserve Thanks it. very much. Thanks a million, lads. Good luck. <laughs> Thanks, lads. Um, Thanks, lads. lads. Quizmaster Harry. Um, this one could have went on for a while. <laughs> well, we, we were about halfway through and I thought, this is going to be the first one where we're going to need the entire pool of 20 questions. And it'll just be whoever is the highest at the end. But no, Dylan uh, he, he scraped his way to five points. Yeah, so um, the Irish his, historian uh, element of t- today's show won a prof in the end, which tied in nicely. I'm surprised, I'll, I'll be honest, I'm surprised. I'm surprised he yeah. got to go Friday because there was no hints. There was no the, the best Tuesday uh, contract. Or the, there's no, nothing yeah. to throw them off. There was no multiple choice, so... Well, yeah, I am impressed he got that. But on the flip side, uh, Johnny thought the the term of an Irish president was two years. Uh, m- listen, maybe term limits, Gar. Cur- what do you cur- think of that? Current affairs maybe isn't their thing. So, um, the quarterfinal prof is tasty, tasty. I'm looking forward to Lee Grace and Jack. I am looking forward to that one because Lee's that- a dark horse. Yeah, and so. Jack's football knowledge. So we have to be very careful how we procure these ones. I think the winner is coming from Green versus Poom. Do you think so? Yeah, Green is quite... I, I, Poom, Poom could be onto something here. Um, it's a blockbuster of a quarterfinal anyway. I think Gary O'Neill, no offence to Dylan, Gary O'Neill will defeat Dylan Watts. So then you're looking at Gary O'Neill in the semis versus either Green or Poom. Now that's, that's an interesting that's one. That's a tough one. It all depends on how the questions fall. It really does, and we're, we're, we should mention Berkey because we 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 know Berkey's game. We yeah, know, we know what he's doing. We know what he's, he's doing. Pretending to be thick, lulling you in. <laughs> he's actually smart. Same way he lulled in uh, McLeany, <laughs> lulled him in. <laughs> False sense of security. Security. Did you know it's the last two quizzes? Maybe further back because I actually didn't keep track. But at least the last two now, the player who went first lost. Which is a big thing. What was your stat on penalty shootouts when you go first? Penalty shootouts, the team that goes first in the penalty shootout wins 60% of the time. 60% of the time. 60% of the time. Every time. Every time. <laughs> uh, big news, Gare. Go on. When we first arranged this, the idea was Harry Moore would just host the last 16. But, given his popularity, Gare... It's pretty obvious what's about to happen now. Uh, Harry Moore is going to continue as guest host for the remainder of this quiz game. His contract's been extended. Now that's just it. We thought we might lose him. Like, you know, like Ike has left and Abby left mm. and free, you know. You know, no transfer fee. You know, you're hoping maybe get some add-ons. But we've kept him, Gar. It's he's a, he's it's signed a on. Big, big contract signing yeah. here now. This, this is We're going to announce this all over our Tifty Socials. <laughs> what a capture. Uh, a sought after young man and um, yeah so he's going to continue on I'm looking forward to this we're going to have to you could nearly like time this to have the quiz live like I mean people I think people will pay to see this quiz final live well the final will be in, done in person uh, absolutely um, we're having a look at the Monday bank holiday in October late October yeah excellent stuff before training so, Prof, so. we are moving on to the football, and we drew one all in Derry last Friday, and the build-up to the game, all week, nerves are at us, and even on the bus, we were sitting there, and we were thinking, this is, like, mm. really such a big game. We were sitting there on a different bus an hour later. Yeah. 
because our original bus broke down on its way to us in the, the four provinces. I'm, I'm in the middle of the motorway. The bus is broken down. I'm thinking, oh, here we go. It's the start of it now. It's a jinx. But we got there eventually an hour late. Um, no stop off in Emmy Vale. No stop off in Emmy Vale. Uh, only one stop, I think, in the whole thing, was it? Um, yeah. Uh, obviously, some people are still only seeing the beer for the first time. So I'm still, even now, weeks later, I'm still getting comments on it. Uh, staff compared me to Kevin Costner. Uh, <laughs> Paul McGrath is the only person who thinks it doesn't suit me, which seals the deal, I think. Yeah, that, ultimately, personally, I'd be like, yeah, don't. That's don't for care me, that's been, yeah. it's staying now. It's, it's, but you know yeah. very well that he saw everybody compliment him, <laughs> oh, so he yeah. decides, of I'm gonna, course, I'm gonna shit on out. Yeah. Just to be contradictory. Uh, I did meet the fan to bandit there. I, I looked him in the eyes and... Was, was he tall? The tall guy? He was tall, yeah. yeah, yeah there was yeah. no fisticuffs. There was no... You know what I mean? He backed down. He knew. He seen, he seen the beard. Well, he's he, not a smoke in your eyes. Well, I was willing to let it go but then he said it's whole piece of water under the bridge or Fanta. So he didn't say he, that. Did he, he had to get that little niggle in there. Oh, so, I like that. So for Hopefully me... Fanta under the bridge. So for me... The feud continues now. Um, I, I was willing to bury the hatchet there, but that comment has just... That's riled me up again now. So, I was... Who did I have a point with? I had a point with young Eamon Sweeney and young Sean Dorkin. Sean Dorkin, who was the original fan of the band. Uh, mistaken identity. Mistaken fan identity fan of the band. Yeah. So I had a point with them in the pros beforehand. Got two good hoops. Yeah. And yeah, so we were... on. We made it up, Prof. Um, we up the five front. minutes late kickoff. Which yeah, was good going I don't think considering. considering not too bad, yeah. We're up the front with Mitzi, who was uh, very, very insistent that we wear our seatbelts on the bus care. And we obliged. You mentioned this many, well, I didn't, but you did. Um, we also had, yeah, well, you, you promised me a bit of a, a beer of culture up the front care. Uh, what I got was uh, Mitzi. That's what we got. Uh, so at one stage, it was. <laughs> so, like, it was. We were supposed to leave a half two, was it? Yeah. So obviously we make our way or Crumman and there's the north side pickup. The M fifty was jammed, let's the be M50 honest. So we had to go through town. Played <laughs> and one fella it's I was this stage it's four PM and someone behind me just goes, We're still in town <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, we just made it now. Yeah. It was it was either that or go on to the M fifty yeah. with an eight car pile up, so it wasn't gonna happen. We took um, uh, they made an executive decision and it worked out in the end, five minutes late. Happy with that. We'll take it. Yeah, we had lots of new faces in the bus. Uh, a lot. I didn't recognise many of them. Yeah, great um, to see though. That's what we want. Great to see. Staff. Speaking of staff, he had a song prepared. If we won, couldn't that was the idea. Couldn't, couldn't hold. And then, sure enough, by what five o'clock, all the lads down the back are singing something I don't know. Then Milner puts the lyrics in the chat, and it's like, oh, I guess the song's out now. I was like, you're yeah. weak. <laughs> you are weak. Well, he claims he was asked for it many times, basically saying he was coerced. Uh, Milner's version of events is he just couldn't wait to see. <laughs> so, believe who you want there. It was the same team as Bowles, our 11. Um, but, do you know what? It was the benches I was staring at. I was staring at Derry's bench. Loaded. And I thought five of those players would normally start. Yeah, it depends, isn't it? I mean, um, we were looking at it as well, and we were just thinking if both teams emptied both benches, I mean, mm. they they possibly make the team better. Like it's unbelievable benches on both squads. So, like we said, we were getting nervous on the way up on the on the bus, just thinking this is it's the first time I've gotten nervous by a bench yeah. from an opposition team. And you do, if they make one or two 
shrewd additions. They they would be a force to be reckoned with next could, season. They could possibly trim the fact now they as still well. they could still take this title yeah. down to the wire this season. But just kind of looking ahead the next year, one or two signings, yeah. So first, first half, half, half yeah. um, I felt. I felt we played well. I think Stephen Bradley in his post-match interview said that he wasn't a fan of the first half. I felt that we we really went for it. I was actually quite happy. I was very happy with it. I thought we um, we were on the front foot. We attacked them. We got a lot of space in their half. I I was really happy with with how we how we uh, approached the first half. I thought it was really positive. If you watch the highlights, uh, eventful highlights, by the way. Yeah. My God, lap packed into ten minutes there. The first five minutes were all first half. Um, so if you go back to the early stages some tough tackles and a lot of tension in on the pitch and off the pitch early yeah. on the one with Cavo where he was just thrown to the ground I mean like by hair ruffling red card standards that's a red card I know and yeah. these things are easily forgotten as as the season goes on, you know, and Pico's first card out in Sligo, I mean, it was that that was yeah. ridiculous. But but there was a, like a let them know you're there tackle in the first three minutes. Um, then the game opened up a good bit. Diallo was actually very good for them, um, and he had a cha- he had a chance himself. Remember the ball from the right, and he yeah. kind of caught it on the body half. Yeah, body. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, our best chance fell to Gaffney. Um, it was a goal line block very from McJanet, who was a big unit, and he ends up scoring the goal. And actually, kind of a double block because it was blocked the first time. Keeper, and I think, then, made a save, yeah. And then it was like, I don't know if it's the keeper or the defender, but Gaffney had another bite at it. And so, yeah, that, as usual, Gaffney was our bright spark. He was excellent. He's such an outlet. There was one, was it the first half or the second half, where the ball just hung in the air. And he was second favourite to it all day, but the the defender just kind of made a balls of it. I think he slipped, and the next thing Gaffney has chested it down. He stops it dead, turns, and shoots just wide. Like he just makes it. I know. Out of nowhere, no, no, nothing. He's yeah. such an outlet. I felt that. Um, I felt we were very good at wide as well, and we really brought it to them. It was great to see us attack this dairy team up in the Brandywell with purpose, like with real without fear as well. So that's that's what I was reading. The one about. in May was it May, where we won two 0 the, the Rich, um, Richie Tell yeah. goal. To me, that's one of Brazier's best performances. Absolutely, yeah. Certainly away from home. I know we'll put balls in the cup, probably right up there. But um, <coughs> that was unbelievable, and this wasn't quite that. But I was quite happy with the first half. Yeah, we whistle well. went and then having the chats out the back and stuff like that, and and in the round where we get a cup of tea. Um, I I was very happy with the way we approached it. Um. And I think a couple of people weren't happy. They thought that we were quite poor. I, I was happy with that first half. I thought we it was eventful and we were sprightly, to say the least. Yeah, the halftime subs. Um, so Cavo and Finn are on a yellow. But maybe Brazzer was going to make these subs anyway. But um, he brings on Trevor Clark and Ferugia on either flank. And they definitely made a difference. Although... I thought Trev was decent, but he never quite had the beating of the fullback. Yeah, this is the epitome of a power sub. Yeah. This is like, okay, we're going for it. And it was very, very admirable of the management team to do this. Think about what they did at halftime. They changed both wing backs and said, let's do this. Let's go for it. We have them on the ropes. And you were right about Trev. He he just didn't seem to have the beating of, I think it was McJanet. But it was a, uh, it, it was admirable. You could see what he was trying. He got to the line every time and noticed that he wasn't really beating him. 
but then he had an alternative option with Gary O'Neill and yeah. someone else there and we worked it in and we made a difference it was an alternative to what we were trying that wasn't working 100% and then we worked it back in and it worked eventually so and you could tell they were afra- <laughs> they were afraid of Ferrugia you could tell that a number of times absolutely um, so yeah there goes on 42 minutes so from the corner or sorry yeah, yeah, 62. 62 yeah minutes. so just a great ball swung in and um, like you said a big unit of a man McJanet just buries it he scored a lot of goals from set, set pieces, pieces again yeah, yeah. He, scored, he does score from set pieces yeah. so good header from set piece and which is it was very much against the run of play at this point oh, totally it was, against it I mean was this like their first really good chance I of the match yeah I didn't I can't really think of anything I thought McMullen McMullen's a good player he was kept quiet now they had some excellent chances after their goal yeah. but I mean up until this point we were on top and they scored I think this took the wind out of our sails we struggled after it I think they had a great chance at Adam O'Reilly as well who really should have scored there was two wasn't there yeah, was, he was, was at a um, great angle and he put it at least about six feet wide it was a poor chance it was a poor take in the end so yeah there was McMullen on the right I think there was a chance involved with him and then the one you say O'Reilly um, now at the time I thought why didn't he square that and then I watch it from behind and I'm like he, he is true on goal yeah so I don't you gotta take the shot I think I don't blame him for shooting, but but I think oh, the whole after the goal, I just thought there you were on top, and I didn't see where our goal was coming from. But it didn't look like we were doing much. That was a big moment. That O'Reilly chance at one nil. That is a huge moment. But then the the bit of magic that is getting nowhere near the love it should be getting is the way the ball was played <laughs> out. Wasn't a counter attack. It was a brilliant bit of play started at the back line, worked up. And then Rory Gaffney, the ball when the ball gets to Rory Gaffney, eventually he has so much to do. Left foot torn pass puts Bork through, and then Bork mm. just buys the penalty. It's a penalty all day. I am still arguing with my wife over this over this decision. <laughs> to me, it's a stone wall. She, she she's telling him she's telling me it's not, and I'm saying look at the contact where the family's divided, prof. <laughs> like oh, it's four on one versus Lar. So Lar is saying. That is not a penal. It's soft. And I'm saying it is a penal. We're, we're stopping it frame by frame. And Maya and Jaden are beside me. And they're like, look at his arm. He has him. He's literally just about to pick him up. He puts his arm on him. He's true on goal. It's a penal. But Larry goes, Borky knows what he's doing there. No, and I goes, he does. He's bought the like penal. Where players wait for the contact. And they want it. And they go down. There may be a small element of that. It, that's modern football. But, as you say, the arm is there. He's pulled down. <coughs> why, Excuse me, Prof. Um, why was the entire Irish Independent report... Well, not entire, but like... Why was the first half of it all got to do with this panel and Higgins' complaints about it? It's not... like I mean, there's contact in the box. He's true on goal. He's about to shoot. An arm comes across him and brings him down. Therefore, stops a goal-scoring opportunity... Does not make an attempt for the ball. That's a red card mm-hmm. and it's a penal. And now, I get the that you could I get say that r- journalists and writers they like to latch on to themes, and the theme was obviously penalty heartbreak for Derry because they went out of the cup in Europe and penalties, and here's more penalty heartbreak. But it's a penalty, and it comes from you. You say such a good uh, build-up move. I think I think Clark's pass is my is my favorite part of this. <sighs> 
What was he, it called? He the, struggled slightly, didn't he? Didn't was he? The slide rules. Yeah, he nearly got he ne- to, to Gaffney, wasn't it? But he nearly lost possession as well. And he no, did really to well. Bert. Oh, to Bort, yeah. But Bort nearly yeah. lost possession as well. Bort did brilliantly. Yeah. Um. So a brilliant, brilliant move that ultimately would have probably resulted in a goal. And Graham Bork is confidence personified at the minute. He's been brilliant the last couple of weeks. I don't think he gets enough love at the minute. Bork is one of the first names on the starting sheet for us and he's been so good and influential in the last couple of weeks and this is uh, this could have I mean they're, they're missing him now for the next game Sloy go away could, it could play into our hands slightly I mean McElhaney's a big player for them yeah so like you say yeah McElhaney um, sent off there for chopping down Burke but um, there was a, he was actually in the paper I think it was uh, was one of the local papers saying you could retire a happy man if you finally win the league medal mm. with Derry. But it's not just an amazing move. It's when we did it. Away to our rivals with five minutes to go, one nil down. The difference between being four points ahead and one point ahead. And trust the process play, once again worked, didn't it? To put that move together was It was superb. And very even, satisfying. Like, it went totally under the radar because we were just happy that we got the penalty and and we equalised and went and got a valuable point and this was like the conversation we had for maybe the guts of two hours on the way up is the would you take a draw conversation Yeah, we were battling each other over it me and you Mitzi and a couple of others were talking about would you take a draw but I think a 94th minute I just felt a presence behind me going would you take a draw <laughs> I said circumstances it's That's circumstantial totally difference it's circumstantial question but I don't When's the last time I celebrated a penalty award that much? It was so important. And then Berkey, no better man, stick it away. I think very, very cool and calm and he just stroked it home. Just waiting for Marathon. I move. had I'm I'm nervous for all penalties. Do you know what? I I wouldn't say I turned away, but I I didn't wasn't fully watching it because I was so nervous. You were a little bit, yeah. You were to my left. You yeah. were you weren't totally focused. You you definitely had one eye on. <laughs> Lee Grace turned away as well. Do you know? And that? for the fir- did he? I didn't see it yeah, for the first time ever. Bend. I didn't. I it was a relief. You know what I mean? Yeah. When I celebrated, I just went. Everyone else is going nuts all around us, and we're just standing there going, "Thank God." You it's just knew in the moment. Yeah, you're like, such a wow, big point. Such what a big an important point. goal. Coming out of the ground, Dunster goes. Best draw ever. <laughs> uh, Colin Nolan. Did anyone cop the announcers Colin Green or Aaron Green and Bort William Bort? <laughs> no, I didn't at all. Yeah. But um, we had poor Amo and our, our overseas fans. They had Vinny Pert on commentator. Mm. Really, really pronouncing his his P's and his T's there for, for some reason. Lots of um, Individual performances. Um, like we, we did sing a little bit more than alrighty for them Poom set pieces were a little off on, Starting off, on, yep. on this occasion and the super subs we've mentioned the, the two that came on at half time and Bert for his role I think but, Pico deserves a big shout out as well I thought Pico was brilliant and he really yeah. held things together the whole back line I mean the fact that Sean Hart can't get in here when he was instrumental at the start of the season and he was brilliant you lose your place in this team and anyone has any sort of good game or any sort of form you're in trouble. You you have to really work hard to get back into this team. Sean Hoare has a lot of work to do. It's it's just so um, unfortunate though. Sean Hoare is a very good defender. He, he's, he, he was one of our favourite defenders <laughs> at the start of the season. I think he was our best defender last season. Yeah. 
so, Pico missed a chunk with the injury and uh, international It just but, shows you the, the competitiveness of this. And that's something that I always try and say to Jaden. Um, Jaden's season, he's got two and two, he's doing well, Prof. He's got two goals in two games, started well this season. But he, I always say to him, I said, if you don't start, remember, I'd show him pictures of the bench for Rovers and I'd say, look who's not starting. Graham Borg hasn't started every game. I said, but they all have a part to play. It's a squad game. You have to remember that. You could The reason they're going to bring you on, let's say it's 60 minutes and it's nil all, and they bring you on, where are they bringing you on? They think you're going to change the game. They think you can do something. Always remember that. That's You have to kind of instill the squad mentality into the into their minds. But um, I think that's, that's what they've bought into so much in this team, is the squad mentality. They that, don't that see goes it. back to Mike O'Neill. Yeah. He used to call it a 14-man game. 14-man game, And yeah. now it's a 16-man game. But... Um, did you have any kids listen to the quiz, by the way? Because I bet they probably would have got more than... Uh, uh, I'm going to listen back to it. It's me and Maya's little thing that we do. But one, she's unfortunately... She's out of action now for five weeks. She broke her thumb on the weekend. And she had a, she scored on, on a debut and everything. She was having a great game. But now oh, she's no. out. So she's sick. So we're going to have to think. Cause we have to learn to write with our, her other hand now. That's what the teacher said. We have to learn to write with our other hand. So I will get well soon, Maya. But... Um, yeah, so that felt like a win for us, um, for obvious reasons, and they must be sick. It would be a real kick in the teeth, you know, for yeah. a fact it would be, yeah, because they thought they were going to be within a point of, of us, mm. and now it's, what, six games left, four points there, tough game up in Sligo, we've got UCD away, not a gimme by any by mm. any stretch of the imagination. They've got UCD prof. at home, so in theory that evens yeah. out, but... Did you also notice that when McJanus scored, he headbutted a teammate? No, <laughs> he, he, like, as in like same time as the ball. Watch it back in um, or some was it Aiden I think pointed out. Watch it in like half speed, and you can just watch him run away to celebrate. Proper headbutts him. He looks like he's unconscious, and McJanus picks him up. <laughs> his, li- his lifeless body like, runs back. It's like there you go now. But, um, it's, yeah. uh, it's amazing beyond but Derry I thought Derry um, Derry went for it I thought they were they were good and um, it's a real shootout now Prof it's going to be very interesting yeah. the next couple of games but mark yeah. my words there is one result that's going to shock everyone in this run in there always is there's going to be a mad result there something that you do not expect like, I'm not saying yeah. who's going to be but there is one isn't there you know what I'm on about Oh yeah, there's a there's a crazy one coming up. Derry for, for people, it was supposed to four hundred fifty was there in um, the Brandywell, but for anyone not familiar, it's unique the way we leave the ground. In that, well, it's obvious for there's no segregation coming in. We actually walk by the home, all the home entrances yeah. round all the way back to the away section. But when we leave, we walk through the stand, and we walk by the the media and uh, so Dan McDonald was there and I just, I'd say they're thinking this needs to change I just look at him and like oh Dan's gonna get a few few comments tomorrow <laughs> as I'm here yeah. Pelters. yeah I think he bring. I haven't listened to Eloise Andrew but yeah he brings it up he got there was a few barbs at him um and on that note get a media reaction yeah Keith Tracy was getting a few barbs as well normally I like him bro normally I think he's pretty good um I think I think he might have got it wrong, in my opinion, as regards to Borky being low on confidence. It's the exact opposite. He actually probably couldn't have got it any any more wrong because... I don't think Burke gets a chance to pull the trigger. But Bork is not a confidence player either. Bork is confident no matter what. He's that type of guy. You know what I mean? I don't think he needs a couple of games to get going. He could just 
turn it on like that. He's not a confidence player. Mm. So I think he might have got it wrong with that one. He also said we were poor on the night, which I totally disagree I with. I totally disagree with as well. I think we went up and we battled really hard and we got a good point up there. Mm. Well, you were, you were making the point that you know our goal was not a counter-attacking move. And the goal, the that move didn't get much love in the reports. Um, it was all about the award of the penalty, but look before and Tommy Tarmy had a bee in his bonnet about this. He certainly did. He was. <laughs> I love the way he asked like seventeen people on yeah. Twitter when he makes a point. He's uh, right though because this would possibly been discussed and analysed and dissected if it was possibly another team, and they were probably would have gave a kudos and and plenty of praise. But with this particular move, I think it deserves a lot more um, praise. Than, than, it, than it currently got which is zero zero praise at half time Tommy comes up and he goes holy Jesus prop half time the half time results <laughs> and I'm like you mean half time scores Tommy because Cork it was Cork nil Wexford won Galway Ford Dundalk nil obviously they were going to win that and passed for one nil down as well but pass and Cork did go through so just just on that Tommy half time is a score full time is a result but yeah Galway Absolutely tonking Dundalk. Um, that was bizarre. Um, O'Donnell made three subs at 3 0 down. O'Donnell made a 3 0 down in the first half? Yeah. What happened there? Like, that's, a, that's a crazy. I, I genuinely couldn't believe it. I mean, it's a massive cup game, and now Bowes have now, to travel up there. Now, God, we have Bowes at home. Um, historically, a bit of a bogey team. Now, Galway have been out of the first out of the Premier Division for a few years, but you remember everyone remembers Galway shocking balls three two. Oh, Jason Malloy. In the second last I game can't think of two managers who I would not like to see uh, angry. Like Ali Horgan and John Caulfield, like two known nonsense individuals who will be gunning for this well, for this final. After their Back to the Future poster I've I've quite warmed to, uh, <laughs> to the two of them. But um yeah. Emma, who was our mutual friend of uh, Kieran Roddy, the the dairy gentleman from last week, she congratulated me on getting my prediction right. Remember, I said one all. Oh yes. So, thankfully, I got the prediction right, and he did not. He said two nil. Uh, Arda says two people. Arda Stanford, two people congratulated her for getting elected to the board. <laughs> just go, just roll with it. Uh, yeah, uh, you stay sexist, Hubert. Uh, <laughs> it's probably Dave Kennedy. Uh, we also have Aiden. He says, uh, the fella with the big drum after the game. Wasn't sure what his intentions were as he approached, but fair play to him, giving us a good look, bang the, bang the drum. B- bizarre. I was standing beside you and I was like, Prof, what is your man doing? And I was looking around like, is this He's happening? got this drum the size <laughs> of like a baby's pool. Not those swimming pools, the paddling pools. Oh, was massive. And he's got it on his back and he's marching with intent. <laughs> and I'm looking at him going, what is he doing? <laughs> And then he just starts milling it. He's totally on his oh, own. Like, so he's just like... Understand. And we're like, what's the end to this? What's going to happen? And then that was it. I was like, okay, fair enough. Like, Yeah. Okay, there you fair go. Enough. So Jim Conroy, prof, Borky has nerves of steel. Reminded me of Toller's winning penalty against Balls and Daily Mount in 94. So some uh, vivid memories from uh, one of our memory men, Jim Conroy. Yeah, well, did I say it earlier? Now the President's Cup, twenty twenty one. That's Berkey's only miss that I can think of. Oh jeez, I can't even remember. And that, that, I think back and that wasn't even of any great importance, was it? President's Cup. So 
Every penalty that's mattered. He's very Berkey, cute. Berkey has a splash. All right, so prop up next, we have uh, John Dorney. So we are back again with our author series. Uh, this time it's a Robbers fan with a non-football book. So it's John Dorney. He's a historian, author, and lecturer. So welcome to the show, John. Thanks, Carl. Well, first of all, how did you get into following Robbers? Um, like a lot of people, my dad took me to my first game. So it was way back in 1989 or 90, um, 89, I think, in the years when we were in Daily Mount, you know, in between Milltown and the RDS. And like Rovers were terrible at the time. Everything about the club was kind of gloomy. You know, I was about nine years old, I think. And uh, we beat Bowes, though. So that was the thing. He brought me to two Rovers Bowes games in, in that season. And Rovers won both of them. But Vinnie Arkett scored. That's all I remember about it. And then, like, I'd kind of go to the odd game in the RDS and stuff with my dad. But then, like, I started going on my own when I was about 14 to the RDS. And I just, you know, the way I suppose when you're a teenager, people are looking for stuff to you know, to break away from home or to, you know, do stuff that feels slightly dangerous or something, you know, or at least independent. And that's how I kind of got into it. And I kind of, uh, I found people who actually, some of them went to my school as well, who also were Rovers fans, but I actually like, never really hung around with them at school until we all realized we were Rovers fans, you know. And yeah, since then, I mean, it's just, it kind of, you know, yourself credit just becomes part of your life. You know, you can't get away from it no matter what you do, no matter how hard you try. Yeah. Would you have a favorite Robbers eras, teams, players? Favorite eras now, to be honest. Like, I mean, there's never I've never seen a Rovers team like this. Like, this is by far the best Rovers team I've ever seen. Like, even including the 2011 team, they're much better. They're much technically better, much more consistent. I think Bradley's probably a better manager than uh, Michael O'Neill. For all Michael O'Neill's great strengths, you know. Um, but the stuff that you remember most is the stuff that happens probably when you're, you know, very young, when you're a teenager or that kind of time. So I, the stuff that I remember most vividly is kind of the late 90s stuff. And Rovers, again, were terrible. Like, we were bouncing around from ground to ground and we got relegated. And, well, that was a bit later, but we nearly got relegated in 1997. And, like, we had to go up to Dundalk and Tony Cousins scored, I think, two goals. Derek Tracy, you know, that kind of stuff really sticks out for me, even though it was a really crappy era in the club's history, you know. But in terms of, like, the current era has definitely given the best standout memories. Like, you know, the 2019 cup final and and winning the league and all, and all that kind of stuff like so definitely this is the best football era that i've ever experienced at rovers you know that's in that game you mentioned i think isn't there a quote from you in the owen rice book about that game about we were singing a song at the end of the game because it pretty much kept us uh up or survived from relegation yeah yeah i mean i i don't remember the song at this point but it would have been like you know hoops are staying up or something like that but um, like, yeah, it was. The league was also not in as good shape then as it is now. Like, um, in those days, like Dundalk were particularly badly supported. They went through one of these real kind of um, you know, dips in support. Like they were well supported kind of in the eighties and early nineties, and then for some reason they all just went away in the kind of late nineties. So like Rovers fans were in the main stand in Oriel. It took over a half of the main stand, like for that game, if you can imagine. And um, it was just yeah. Like the support had kind of dwindled, but it was really hardcore at the time. Like it was, you know, kind of nonstop singing throughout the game, which you still get it. But it's kind of, you know, nowadays it's kind of the Italian style, you know, kind of melodic chants and stuff. It's kind of the more the more British style kind of in those days, you know, if you know what I mean. So it's kind of it takes a bit more effort. You know, you have to keep thinking up new chants. You know? <laughs> um, but like I remember just I think Derek Tracy scored the third goal. There's just absolute carnage. Like you're buried under a pile of bodies at the, the front of the stand, you know, this kind of thing. And uh, 
you look at it, it's kind of, at that point, there's only a few alphalas supporting the duck, and they're kind of looking at us like we're completely crazy. You know? <laughs> that's, my, that's my main memory of that came in. You know? So you've seen some highs and lows since then. Like, what would be, what would be a standout night for you as a hoop? I mean, the stuff since we went to Tala, like for those of us who were there before, it's just unbelievable. Like all of it almost is unbelievable, apart from the kind of the dip era under Femlin and Crawley and stuff. Um, but like, you know, even moving into Tala, the first game, it's just absolutely epic. Like, you know, I mean, I was talking to a certain board member who said, I won't name, who said the, the place was sold out twice over. You know, we, we only had the one stand at the time with 3,000 seats, but there's probably 6,000 people there, you know, and Twig scoring. Um Twig scoring in the last minute twice to beat Bows in the same season. It's also unbelievable. But then the European nights, like we played Juventus uh, qualifying for the Europa League. Um, even the cup final, like we hadn't been in the cup final since 2002. And that was not much of an occasion. Like we accidentally started a fire and we had to be evacuated from the stand in 2002. But in 2010, again, 2019, like we had 30 plus thousand at the game. And, you know, that's mind blowing for someone who was around in the, the bad years. Um, obviously winning the league recently, there's loads of actual high points like it used to be you'd have one high point in a season and now you have three or four like you've beaten both three nil might have happened three or four years you know every once every four years and now you can kind of uh oh, beat both three nil again you know um but yeah it's it's for that reason it's kind of hard to think of a high point recently because it's it's all much better than i was ever expecting you know where do you sit in tala and who are you normally with on a match day yeah south stand um up at the Top right hand side as you're looking from the goal, and uh, you know, um, generally, yeah, on rice, uh, Peter Murphy, uh, McDerrick Ferris, a lot of the time, who you know from the program, Carl, you've had on the show as well, um, and, and some other kind of people, people like that. Um, I'm we have another spot. The, of, uh, the halftime quiz gets very competitive. Halftime quiz, yeah, I'm the quiz master though, so I just have to, I don't actually participate, I just kind of moderate, you know, make sure violence doesn't break out. <laughs> But we had our old spot up in the East End, which I still miss a little bit. Like, you know, there was some people there, like we used to, who were kind of part of our group, and they now go to a different part of the South Stand. So I don't know if this has happened to other people since the, the Great Migration, you know, to the South Stand. I've been told to ask about the time you cycled to Waterford. Jesus, who have you been talking to? Yeah. So in 2003, um, I just finished doing a master's in, in, UC, in UCD in history. And yeah, you know, you're kind of at a loose end and Rovers are playing away in Waterford. So it's like, okay, I've been sitting down for the last whatever X number of months, you know, writing this thesis and stuff. I'm just going to cycle down to Waterford. I'm also into cycling. like So it wasn't just spur of the moment, but like, uh, yeah, so got in the bike. That night got as far as Gory, stayed overnight in Gory. Next day made it to Waterford. Actually made it to Tremor and uh, stayed there. It came up and <laughs> Rovers went 3-0 down, but uh, got it back to, the, I think, I think Rovers got it back to 4-3 and then lost another equaliser, if I remember right. Like, you know, but uh I think is that the game you're talking about three all and then Trevor Malloy missed the last minute penalty. That's yeah, that sounds right. Yeah, I kind of forget some of the details, but I remember things like uh Dejan, who, who you probably know. His real real name's Tommy. Uh he had, he was the kind of uh capo of the ultras or whatever, if you want to use that term at the time, and he spent his whole game with the with the back to his back to the game in protest, like Rovers going goes down, and even afterwards he figured it was working, so he didn't turn around to watch the rest of the game, you know, <laughs> stuff like that. But uh, yeah, so then anyway, then I, yeah, I, at that time I didn't know you could put your bike on the train, so I cycled back, and that took me two more days. Like I got to Carlo, and then I cycled back the following day. But actually, Rovers were at home in Derry, like I think I must have. So I was back okay, for a midweek game against Derry up in Talca. Hence the legend. Like the legend is, I came like I cycled straight down to Waterford and straight back, but it's, it's a little bit less. You know, it's a little bit less interesting than that. 
I think I'll, I think I'll stick to the the Black Express bus to water for myself now. Um, but you're in uh, Rathfarnham, I believe. And where where do you work? Yeah, I work for UCC at the moment, University College Cork, but uh, it's it's remote, so I don't have to live in Cork. Uh, thank God, you know. But uh, it's a research project counting the dead of the Civil War. So we are compiling a table of all the names of the people who were killed in the Civil War after the treaty 100 years ago. And that's what I'm doing until next year anyway. And then after that, I'll be on to something else, I suppose. Let's talk about the the book. So your most recent book was The Civil War in Dublin, The Fight for the <coughs> Irish Capital, 1922-1924. So that was published in 2017. But you're actually a multi-published author. First was Griffith College, Dublin, History of His Campus. That was 2013. Uh, Peace After the Final Battle, The Story of the Irish Revolution, 1912-1924. That was published in 2014. And then there's the ebook Story of series. So we have the story of the Easter Rising, story of the Irish War of Independence, the story of the Irish Civil War. So that began in 2010. So I suppose go back to the the story of series. What was the inspiration behind those? And then on to the, the, the later books. Well, those are really very short books, like more like kind of pamphlets. And a guy called Owen Purcell, who nowadays works for Amazon over in, in London, he was just starting up a small kind of publishing label here. And e- e-books had just become a thing, basically. And he, he, he wanted a series on Irish history. And I'd actually gone to college with him. So someone else put me in touch with him. And he said, you know, would you write these, you know, these things for me? So, um, yeah, I mean, uh, I'm kind of slightly embarrassed of those now. You know, if people find them, you can still buy them. I won't stop you. But like, uh, there's, you know, they're they're very short and they're quite, they're quite simple. Like, you know, um, on the other hand, it got me started and also got me involved with me and Owen set up at the time. Owen Purcell set up this website called The Irish Story, which is still running, which is a website about Irish history. And that came out of that. Um, so then Owen said at some point, because he also worked for a publisher called New Island, why don't you put them together and we're coming up to the centenaries and make a book, which is an overview of the Irish Revolution. So from the time in 1912, when things uh, got a bit hairy in Ireland with the Home Rule Crisis up until the end of the Civil War in 1924, or the af- the end of the aftermath of the Civil War. And that was the next book, Peace After the Final Battle, which was my first paper book and the first kind of full-length book, which was in some ways like putting them together, but it was also adding quite a few things and like refining it, you know. So is this topic like obviously a labour of love for you? Is this something you have always been passionately interested in? Yeah, I mean... Um, Certainly, I've always been interested in history. Like my my dad would have told me about history and stuff like that. And um, kind of, yeah. I mean, the, what I originally studied in college and stuff and stuff for my masters was the fifteen hundreds. You know, so a totally different era. But like, I got to thinking that the twentieth century stuff was something that was much more relevant to today, and much more, you know, much more direct. You can kind of touch it, and you can even meet people who were still alive or their parents were still alive when it was on. So I kind of. You know, I kind of switched to that era, but also like it might surprise people now at the end of this decade of centenaries. And we've had so much about these events, but like 15 years ago, there wasn't that much really research on them. You know, there was kind of the legend about them and there was rival legends about them, if you like. But the nitty gritty of it and in terms of what what went on, people didn't have the sources that they have today. Like today, you can um, you can open up websites like the Bureau of Military History and the military pensions and you can basically find out what almost everyone who was involved did you know thousands of people i mean for what i'm doing now you can find out the circumstances of almost everybody who was killed you know throughout that period there's about four thousand people killed and you can 
find where they were killed, how they were killed. You can there's a pretty good chance you can find who killed them. You know, so it's there's been an awful lot of work done, and I suppose I've played my own little part in that. You've kind of kind of stalled on my next question there, but the uh, fight for the Irish capital. Uh, there's a quote on the book saying, Dorning's exacting research using primary sources and newly available eyewitness testimonies from both sides of the conflict provides total insight into how the entire city of Dublin operated under conditions of disorder and bloodshed. So, given that it's such a well-documented time in the history of the Ireland, what new material did you uncover? That well, What did you find that hadn't been in print before? Well, like, you know, A, it's it's documented now. I mean, that was through the 2017, so that's like six years ago, but it yeah. wasn't so much then. But secondly, like, so of all that period, you know, and I, and I get that people who are not, you know, history buffs don't necessarily have this all in a line in their head, but like, you know, 1916, everyone pretty much knows what happened. You know, they went and they took over the GPO, like there's more to it than that. But like, when you get to the Civil War, you know, fighting each other over the treaty, most people have a very hazy idea about it. And there's a good reason for that, which is that until very recently, hardly anything had been written about it. And what had been written about it basically ignored Dublin, you know. So, like, this is before I started even writing books about that period. But, like, there's a monument near my house to a guy called Frank Lawler who was killed, it turns out, in 1922, which is in the middle of the Civil War. But my dad always told me he was, you know, an IRA man who was killed fighting the British, fighting the Black and Tans. And he said, my, my dad, I think, used to make up the best stories we didn't know, you know, but the, he said he was there was a lorry going up the round the road and they ambushed it and they, he was killed throwing a grenade or something. And like, I eventually looked at the monument, which is written in Irish, and all of those details are wrong, you know. So he, he first of all, he wasn't killed in combat at all. What happened to him was he was um, arrested in Ranala and he was brought out to Milltown and, and he was killed, shot in the head. And secondly, he wasn't killed fighting the British. He was killed, you know, it was Irish and Irish. He was abducted by the Free State Forces. Um, it, because it turns out they thought he had done this other murder that he killed a politician called Seamus Dwyer in Rathmines and they took him out to Milltown and shot him in the head and it turned out he hadn't done the murder at all by the way so somebody else did it who they later shot as well but like it really shocked me to think that something like that had gone on in, in our city in Dublin you know and once you start looking into it you know it kind of mushrooms like it's 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 a truly dark story but it's really fascinating because outside of kind of people who were a history buffs or kind of really committed Republicans. Hardly anybody knows anything about this, you know. But like you're looking at 25 plus people like killed, just picked up by state forces like so by the police and, and the military and murdered in Dublin, you know, just driven out to the countryside and shot. You're looking at hundreds of people um, killed and injured. You know, you're looking at parts of the city you know, where kind of people were afraid to travel up and down like the Angier Street Georgia Street kind of access because of all the grenade attacks on it. Um, and then obviously events like the four courts where the whole parts of the whole city centre were destroyed. So, like, it's it's still kind of shocking to me that this could have happened in a place like Dublin, you know? Like, Dublin is, in some way, it depends on the part of Dublin, but it's still kind of a, a sleepy kind of place in some ways. You don't expect this kind of thing to happen here, but it did, you know? Uh, a lot of work goes into a book, obviously, uh, particularly a topic like this, a huge amount of research must go into it. Was it pretty satisfying when you had the finished product to fight for the Irish capital, putting it out there? And what was the response like to the book? Um, It's kind of more relief, like to kind of to answer the bit of your first question that I didn't answer. Like, so, I mean, in terms of the primary sources, like, I, you know, I read, went to the military archives and I read all the, the army's reports, like the army has loads of stuff from Dublin at that time. It's the Free State Army, the National Army. 
the IRA amazingly wrote everything down as well, and that's all in UCD in the, the Toomey papers. Um, you've got the government um, papers, a lot of them are held again in UCD and so on, et cetera, et cetera. So, I mean, it's, year, it's years of work in the archives. When it's out, you really feel more relief, you know. You feel like, oh, finally it got over the line. But, like, it got a good, it got a very good response, really. So it sold, I think, 4,000 copies, which by Irish history standards is very good. Um, you know, I had a big launch and stuff like that, and it got good reviews. So I was very happy with it. Like, and I mean, I felt that I am doing my part to kind of open up the history of that period a bit more. So take it away from like the legends or the stereotypes and, and look about, let's look at what actually happened. You know, we can kind of judge it afterwards, but you know, let's have some idea of what actually went on. Warts and all kind of thing. Mm. So let's talk uh, robbers links, the Irish history and uh, the areas that you'd be an expert on. So there's three that you tell me about. We'll talk about the cup file in a moment. But uh, we've got a robber's legend, uh, Jimmy Dunn. Uh, a lot of people will be familiar with that name in Irish football. He was interned during the, the Civil War. Mm. And then we also have a future robber's player who uh, helped the four-course garrison in 1916. That's John Kruger Fagan. So how do we know about their involvement? And what do we know about it? Well, Jimmy Dunn is actually kind of famous. Like, I mean, when you're talking to the kind of older heads at Rovers, like, I helped uh, Owen Rice research his book many years ago, for example, and guys would tell you, yeah, Jimmy was a great Rovers player back in the 30s, um, and he was interned in the Civil War, but they weren't looking for him at all. They were looking for his brother Christie. So it was kind of it was kind of a Rovers legend from back in the day. Um, so I just I kind of just knew the Rovers angle actually, um, and like I uh, I haven't researched you know if he really did anything in the Civil War or not. But the thing is, one of the things about that time, like there was twelve thousand people put in prison, which by our standards, an awful lot of people. And you didn't have to have a trial or anything like that. They could just arrest you on suspicion. So the Rover story is always that it was his brother who was the IRA man. And Jimmy was picked up anyway. Um, now, I, I looked up just before we started talking, Carl. You know, uh, Jimmy Dunn died when he was 44. So, I mean, a lot of mm. people suffered from the after effects of imprisonment. Like, he went on to be a sportsman. Like, he played in England as well as playing for Rovers. And he was Rovers manager, I think, later on, or player manager or something. But I think he still holds the record for... Uh scoring in consecutive top flight English matches for Sheffield United. Jamie yeah. Bardi nearly broke it, but he couldn't quite break it, yeah. Yeah, so I mean maybe maybe I'm I'm putting two and two together and coming up with five, but I mean he did he did die very early at 44. So maybe the imprisonment, you know, it did that to him because people caught people would catch these diseases like in in uh, internment camps that we're not even not even familiar with anymore, like pleurisy, um a thing called scabies, which causes your skin to fall off. Like it was got you know, it was called at the time the Republican itch. But, to, you know, the short answer is I don't really know what Jimmy Dunn was interned for because they didn't have to give a reason. And he doesn't have mm-hmm. a he doesn't have a military pension. He never applied for one. Um, John Kruger Fagan did actually apply for a military pension. So and he's also mentioned in a thing called the Bureau of Military History, which is an oral history of the period. So people would come in in the 40s and 50s and give their stories. So um, someone mentioned that they were escaping from the four courts in 1916. So not. The Four Courts was also obviously occupied in 1922 in the Civil War. It was destroyed at that time. But in 1916, it was occupied by the rebels and there was not so much fighting at the Four Courts then, but behind the Four Courts and North King Street and stuff. But anyway, at the end of the week, the rebels, the ones who didn't um, surrender, were trying to get away. And John Fagan, who was 16 at the time when he was working around the corner, uh, helped someone get away. And he says in his pension file that he was incensed by the sight of the British troops advancing up the street, the Lancers and their horses. And that's why 
he just came out to help the rebels spontaneously. He wasn't actually a member of the volunteers at the time. Um, now, according to Sean Ryan, who uh, I think he, he's he's dead now, but he was the kind of historian of Irish football and he wrote for the Sunday Independent. He John Ryan or John Fagan was also a veteran of the War of Independence, but I couldn't find any evidence for that. To be honest, in my quick search tonight. So what he says in his pension file is his mother sent him away after 1916 so the British wouldn't put him in jail. And maybe that's true, I don't know. But they did give him a pension, which is interesting, despite the fact that he wasn't a member of the volunteers. So they paid him something on top of the fact that he was the manager of a labour exchange as well as playing for Rovers in later years, I see. Just uh, just saw this now, actually. Have you ever seen that that sort of uh, story that pops up now and then of uh, Daddy Mount Park welcoming British soldiers in in 1915 has me and gary say for some tea and biscuits uh, have you read that one? <laughs> i mean not not just that one but like the fact is that bose was like you know in in the old days bose was considered kind of a protestant club and they, they did have some connection with i think the hibernian military school which was sort of a feeder school for the british army you know in, in the old days and so like it's kind of it's kind of gone now but when i was you know a young rovers fan there'd be you know there'd be various chants calling bose various things which were in some way related to that time, you know. Now, that said, there was various IRA men who played for Bose as well, like Todd Andrews and stuff, supported Bose and played for Bose at that time. But that was something that people, Rovers fans like to bring up in later times, you know. But definitely, you know, Bose was regarded as kind of a pro-British club, you know, at that time. So, the cup final, Rovers had literally had shots fired at them in the first ever cup final in 1922, uh, Denny Park. So, this is the replay defeat against St. James's Gate, so uh, tell us that story. Yeah. So first of all, I mean, I, I have to do the historian thing here. You know, have to you have to kind of put it in context of what's going on in Dublin at that time, right? So you have the treaty signed in December of 1921. It's approved by the Dáil in January 1922. And what this means is the British start to leave Ireland, or they start to leave the south of Ireland anyway, and they start to leave Dublin. Like they leave the first barracks in February 1922, but they stay in some other barracks. The IRA, meanwhile, splits over the treaty. So you have two rival IRAs, basically, or one side starts to call themselves the National Army, or, you know, the Free State Army, plus the anti-treaty IRA. So you effectively have three rival armies in the city. Now, on top of that, the police force is basically disappeared, you know, because you have the Dublin Metropolitan Police, but they don't carry weapons, and there's a lot of people carrying weapons in the city. So the Dublin Metropolitan Police basically just staying in barracks and waiting to collect the pension. They're not sure what's going to happen next. So there's an explosion, like, in crime, like there's, if I remember correctly, there's something like 300 armed robberies in Dublin that year on top of the, you know, the civil war. And there's like, I can't remember the figure, but there's like dozens of murders, like non-political murders, as well as the civil war. So by my count, there's about 300 people killed in Dublin in the civil war itself, you know, on top of the ones that were killed before in the rising in the war of independence. So the time of the cup final is this unbelievably chaotic time. Like, so you have the anti-treatyites occupying the four courts. You have the pro-treatyites occupying various barracks, and you still have the British forces in the west of the city. They're in the barracks of Kilmainham and Phoenix Park. Meanwhile, you have all these guys running around with guns because there's guns aplenty from these various armies floating around. So all, the, all that's going on, right? Then you have the cup final, which was the first, if I'm not mistaken, FAI cup final. They just split with the Irish Football Association, the North Belfast one the year before. Um, Rovers kind of upstart team at the time. Like St. James's Gate would have been the you know, the big favourites, they would have been a much more established team than Rovers at the time. Um, Rovers get into the final. Now, apparently, again, this is kind of more Rovers legend than, you know, history, because I'm I, I'm not a historian of Rovers by any means. Like, uh, 
he spoke to my friend Jason Walsh McLean, like he is a historian of Rovers, you know. But anyway, apparently Rovers fans used to march from Ring's End behind the White Horse in those days. I think that was supposedly the first time they did it. You know, we've revived that tradition recently, as you know, Carl. Um, there's, I think, 10,000 odd at the game in Dalyman Park. The game doesn't go Rovers' way. I think there's, you know, there's decisions which Rovers fans wouldn't have, wouldn't have been happy with. But at the end of the game, Rovers fans and players invaded the pitch and invaded the dressing room. St. James's the St. James's Gate dressing room to go in and uh, exact vengeance. And one of these guns, as I said, that was floating around belonged to one of St. the brothers, I think, of one of the St. James's Gate players. So he takes it out and it fires shots into the air. And that finally managed to disperse the Rovers mob, you know, that wanted, that wanted justice for the game. So that's that was Rovers' first experience in the FBI Cup final. There you go. What a cool file that was. I know. But I mean, like, just actually to round it out, like something that I've been talking about recently was the cup final the next year, which was uh, Shelburne and a team called Alton United, which was from the Falls Road in Belfast. So that happened in um, May of 1920, or in April actually of 1920. No, sorry. It happened on the, around St. Patrick's Day of 1923. And at that time, the IRA, the anti-treaty IRA had forbid, forbade, forbidden, <laughs> had forbidden all public entertainments and sports because of the executions that were going on. So there was uh, 81, we know now, executions during the Civil War. And so the Republicans said this is a time of national mourning and there shouldn't be any cinemas, theatres or sports. So there's there's a ban on, on public entertainments. And uh, they and one of the interesting things as well, because I've been given to talk about this lately, is they actually shut down the GAA in various parts of the country. But for some reason, they did not do anything to the FBI Cup final, which is very interesting. <laughs> one of the few sporting events that was untouched. And I'm thinking possibly it was because Alton United was this nationalist team from Belfast who came down you know, to, to play in the Southern Cup final or the, the FBI Cup final. And uh, you know, maybe it would, the optics would have been bad, I don't know. But it's uh, I've been looking at it and it's one of the few events that's untouched. Like There's a world title boxing match that's actually held in Dublin at the time and the IRA attempts to blow it up. It's beside the held in a place called La Scala which was beside the GPO on O'Connell Street. But for some reason, they never touched the FBI Cup final that year. And Alton United won the Cup, and they were the only Northern team to ever win the Cup, apart from Derry City. Yeah, so we're having a bit of a, a book background contest here on Zoom. Uh, I've got my library behind me. You've got yours. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, do you yeah. have a favourite history book? Uh, God, No. Like, and it's kind of I, I read history for work now, so it's it's very hard to say I have a favorite one to be honest. Um, I have lots of ones that I think are useful and good, but I couldn't say I have a favorite one. No, you have a favorite football book. Mm. I'm going to go for We Are Rovers by Owen Rice for purely personal <laughs> reasons because I helped I helped research it many years ago. Um, also, yeah, Talent Time by McDara Ferris, another friend of mine, another another favorite of mine. I remember who the co-author on that one was, but uh, what? Yeah, book someone, someone, you... someone, cl- someone close to me here. Yeah, sorry, sorry yeah, yeah. yeah. What book have you not read that you'd like to? Um, there's a book coming out actually about the um. Well, there's two books coming out about the British Army in Belfast in two different eras. Like one of them is by a guy called Ed Burke, which is about the British Army in Belfast in the twenties. And there's another one, I can't remember the name of the author right now, but I've kind of pre-ordered it in Kindle about the British Army in the early 70s in Belfast. And I want to read those two because um, it's it's more interesting. It's uh, as depressing, but probably more interesting than you'd think, I think. Uh, finally, I think you, you, you mentioned it earlier on what you're working on, but uh, what can we expect in the future? Any more books? 
Yeah, so I have another book in the Civil War in me for some reason because uh, you know it, it 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 might surprise people, I think, but it is a kind of an untold story. You know that the real nitty gritty of it has not been teased out. You know, um, people will argue about it, and you can have all kinds of tedious arguments about the internet about it if, if that's your thing. But like in terms of actually what happened and the way it panned out, the how rather than the why, if you like, you know that hasn't been done, and uh, I just have an enormous amount of material now, basically, because partly because of the Fatalities Project, but other things as well. And so I have one more book in the Civil War in me, and then and then I'm probably I'm probably finished with it. Um, I'm not going to write about Rovers, though, because, you know, Rovers is more important. I think you should uh, include uh, Kruger and uh, Don and the, the Cup Final and all there. Just get, get them in somehow. There's better people than me to do it, you know. <laughs> Collaboration with uh, Jamie Clean. Could be, could be. Right, John. Uh, fascinating stuff on uh, Irish history and uh, a bit of Rob as well. So thanks so much for joining us. Thanks very much, Carl. So, Prof. John Dorney, excellent stuff. Um, for all of those historically-minded fans out there, this is a great listen. Uh, a multi-published author as well. So, mm-hmm. bit of culture, Prof. Though he's slightly ashamed of his ebook series, but um, hmm. he's, he's published more than one. Um, this was fascinating stuff, man. Fascinating topic, especially fresh off our Michael Collins mistake from last week. But um, <laughs> Tommy Tommy will love this one. I'm waiting for Tommy yeah. Tommy to pick some sort of hole, and they can have a historian off. So historian v historian. Those were actually Tommy's questions at the end. The ones I asked him about favorite book or book he's not read. Uh, I just didn't credit Tommy, but they were his. Yeah. Um, do you know what? Remember I asked him about the songs they were singing when we beat Dundalk at the end of the ninety six ninety seven season when Tony Cousins like single handedly kept Rovers up from yeah. relegation and he couldn't remember the song and I couldn't remember it at the time either but I remember it now it was We Shall Not Be Moved apparently oh. everyone in the stand in Talca just started singing that at the end of the match or during a 3-1 or whatever I do remember Rovers fans yeah. singing that before now I'll be honest yeah. it's a fantastic stuff from John brilliant brilliant insights and these are the type of interviews the Prof just pulls out a bag absolutely class great listening and for um, not just for the Rovers, I mean, he had stats on the Civil War here. Civil War he stats. counting the dead. <laughs> Literally. So brilliant stuff from John Dorney. Uh, Prof, other results, Cup Quarter Finals, we had Wexford. Uh, now, Galway 4-0, Tonkin, we spoke about that. We had Pats scraping it in the last minute. Two, came from behind. 2-1. In Valley Buffet. Yeah. And Cork came from behind as well. Scuppering our Friday away day, turns cross, Gareth. Therefore... Yep. Derry was our last proper away day on a Friday. Yeah, unfortunately, Monday the 6th of October will now be... Am I right? Or no, the 23rd? 23rd. It was the 6th. It's the 23rd now. Um, so three games in a week for us. Three games in a week and no game in three weeks. No game in three weeks. Break and then three... In the it has, something has to be done. Um, It's it's a toughie. Uh, yeah, Apparently so, the issue was that Cork... We can't have Cork playing in the middle of... Cup semi-final week even though they would have six days rest it's odd so why can't they play so why is the cup getting preferred to the league I don't know it's a tricky one Prof we'll have to delve into it but yeah so Bowes as well Bowes what score was the Bowes result it was uh, I've got the score now but they won away to Drada yeah Drada so they, I think it was 3-1 in the end Afalabi nicking a couple of goals again so the inform Afalabi um, so Cork will be away on the Monday 23rd 
in between drugs at home and pats away so two days after the members gala so an absolutely jam-packed schedule in on and off the pitch prof hey gary we, we've spoken before about how i hate fans pinpointing which games we're going to win but it's tenfold now because i've seen a couple of people point as a draw the game as a win do i need to remind you our form <laughs> against Drogheda? how is that a certainty yeah, no, we can't. We can't predict anything, Prof. It's going to be a jam-packed couple of weeks. The shells game Friday week will be on RTE as well, so we're going to try and sell that one out. It's looking good with ticket sales already. It's going to be jam, Prof. It's a Dublin derby. We're looking at seven thousand again, hopefully. Um, and Bowles, Prof. It's a sad day in the Prof's household. Bowles won the Leinster Senior Cup. That's two trophies they've won now since the 2010 Santander Cup. Gareth, they've won the 2016 and the 2023 Leinster Senior Cup. So the trophy, or sorry, the the Bowes room is slightly less bare than it was a week ago. Um, they they tonked Usher Celtic and took home the Leinster Senior Cup. And I put on Twitter just as a piss take, here's when Bowes win the Leinster Senior Cup and here's when Rowers win it. And it's just Ken O'Man lofting it in 2012, looking disgusting. Disgusting. <laughs> Angry man. Yeah. We got a, a three-game ban for our old pal Victor. Remember Victor from Ukraine who played yes. with us last season for a stamp? Yeah, it was on camera. And has this been confirmed yet? But he is supposed to be the player involved in the racism realm. Nothing's been confirmed yet, mm. Prof. But not been confirmed. Um, hopefully, just on the the swift resolution. Just on the on the Leinster Senior Cup. Why did the Leinster FA keep tagging us in all their posts on Facebook? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know maybe some do you know what it could be a Rovers it's fan it's every day Gary. could be a Rovers fan that listens to the show and he's in charge mm. he could be the admin if you listen to the show fair enough send us a message and stop tagging us <laughs> yeah preferably but send us a message yeah um, uh, maybe they know about my love affair with the LSC yeah probably um, we mentioned a moment ago there how Dan McDonald was getting stick um, it was also about he wrote an article about League of Ireland clubs not making any transfer money from uh, our departures and the same day he wrote that uh, Abby Larkin out of nowhere kind of went to Glasgow City yep and he basically quoted himself then and, and said you know oh here's an example of what I'm talking about and he said this is bizarre and he took a lot of criticism for that because what transfer money is there in the women's game yeah I don't know there's some correlation between the two things but really when you look at it it was a kind of a stupid thing to join together um or you like Katie McCabe went for 250,000 is that what it was I didn't know yeah. it was that, I didn't know it was that much I mean what transfer fees are we talking about in the League of Ireland this is look at the prize money of the Women's National League. Um, really, this worked out pretty well for Rovers. We signed a 17-year-old player who just won a double with Shelburne. Yeah. She played brilliantly for us. On the back of that, she went to the World Cup, impressed, played in all three games. It increased her profile, increased our profile. She wanted to play full-time football. So she's left now. Yeah. It was win-win. Yeah, I absolutely agree, yeah. Um, Glasgow City, I think, is a big women's team as well. Ideally, she wouldn't leave with... <coughs> I'm not sure how many games are left. Is it like half a dozen or something? Yeah. But 
it is what it is yeah. so um, yeah. so Prof tell us about the women tell us about the women's teams yeah so we had been to Cork already in the league if you recall we won 4-0 up in uh, or down in Turner's Cross and uh, this case was moved to the unfamiliar surroundings of Bishopstown and it was a 5-0 win so we had uh, Sambra giving us the lead early on some nice one touch football we had a brace for O'Gorman we had a goal by Ralph who was player of the match excellent move that one uh, build a play involving every outfield player and uh Possibly the best goal was Lauren Kelly at the end because um, Gorman just chips the ball in, just puts it on a plate for her hmm. and she volleyed it in like just on the six-yard box. So, yeah, that put Rovers into the semi-finals where they will be home Tough to draw. Shelburne. Tough draw. So that means two consecutive Saturdays in Tata for the women. Home to Shelburne, the seventh in the league, which has been picked for... Live TV on TG4, and then the 14th will be the cup semi final. So, the other semi final is at Law and Sligo because P Mount were surprisingly dumped out. So, this could be our year, it could be our year, prop, and it could be in Tala Stadium as well, winning the cup in Tala. So, the women have been in excellent form since the break four games played, four clean sheets, 21 goals, and then we had a five star performance. In uh, Cork just there. So good stuff and congratulations to the women. But congratulations as well to media team member John Daskowski. Uh, whose, photo- whose photograph of ex-player Chloe McCarty has been shortlisted for the prestigious prestigious uh, Zurich Portrait Prize 2023. John is in his final year of media production and digital arts degree at our neighbours in TU Dublin Tala Campus. So John, big shout out to John. Very, very talented individual. He is helping us out with a little secret project that we have coming in, Prof. <laughs> The SSC. We will not talk about it anyway. Yeah, but you will hear about us coming. It's yeah. coming hard and fast. Um, yeah, Chloe has since left the club. Um, Tony's daughter. But um, I should mention before we move on there, we had five women's players in the Ireland under-19s. And we had Savannah was uh, recalled to the senior side. So she'll play in the... Well, she'll be in, hopefully be involved in the UEFA Nations League double header. Excellent stuff from Savannah. Very, very good player. Academy results though, Prof. The under-19s drew 3 all with Cove Ramblers. 3-0 down. So a great, great comeback. Um, the 17s were beaten 3-2 by Cork City. And the 15s beat Finharp 6-0. So all of those games with the Rollstone and the under-14s ran out 3-0 winners at Bowes. So a good uh, weekend for the Roadstone. Um, would you like to know what surname was on the score sheet? In the 14s win over Bowes. It's a very familiar name to Bowes fans. Go on. Green. Green. So we have Jack Green. Once oh, again. Lovely. Tormenting Bowes. Doing exactly what his father does best. Um, so, and a good weekend all around for the women. And a 3-0 win at Sligo in the 19s. 2-1 win home at Galway United. So, um, fair play and a great weekend overall, Prof. Um, very productive but Liam Scales former hoop made his Champions League debut for Celtic and he was immense he's been brilliant I've been watching Celtic of interest recently um, I thought they were great under Ange and I, I wanted to see how they progress you could say under the new gaffer and uh, Scales is getting a start but mm-hmm. he's had bomb scares beside him now for a while <laughs> so he's he's mopping up a lot of messes he's come a long way from a UCD in a in three years, isn't he? Yeah, it's um, class. So we spoke about last week Sinclair Armstrong making his senior international debut. Um, so speaking of former hoops, Sinclair Armstrong, 
Um, but then he didn't play. He only came on like what was the last 10, 20 minutes or something. Mm. But he then returned to the under twenty one side under Jim Crawford, and he started that game three 0 win over San Marino, scored a goal, and he he tried to do it. And he first of all his shirt tore as he was like knocking the ball into net because the ball hung in the air and he kind of just got a touch on it over the line. And then his shirt was torn and the players were hanging out of him and all. And Phelan Warren even <laughs> wrote a song about it. <laughs> when Sinclair puts one in, but the shirt's paper thin, that's Castori. <laughs> 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 Bargain oil kit, he says. And then he tried to do a knee slide and it just didn't work and he just stopped dead and just flopped on the floor. I think if it was me and I, just, <laughs> I was footballing again, I wouldn't be going down the knee slide route because there's, yeah. there's far too many who stop midway and bounce and tumble. Potential injury. I think I'd go mm. with an old hand up, Joey O'Brien style. Alan, Sh- Alan, Alan Shearer, Shearer, yeah. yeah. Um, but his interview afterwards, Gary. This is the reason I bring up all this. Did you watch this? No, I didn't. Oh, I'll send it to you later. He's just he's with um, is it Alan Cawley and Stephen Kelly? Maybe it was. And he was just so carefree and just relaxed and laughing. I, I was just watching this like oh and, and they were in amazement as well they were like footballer interviews aren't normally like this yeah yeah he's got personality yeah. but the way he was just standing with the panel and he's just laughing about his goal and they're they're having phone him and all and he just seems he's such a likeable guy mm. um, I just love his whole attitude um, the, we said last week that the reports that Stephen Kenny was gonna finish before the, the campaign ended and Lee Carsley was linked but he has he, he will remain in charge for the rest of the the campaign yep. but what I do like is uh, the stupid odds on next permanent manager whoever that may be so you get the likes of like Bradger's in there 40 to 1 Rafa Benitez 25 to 1 Mourinho like, was even longer odds than Bradger like I just bizarre that- aren't they when I when I see odds like that, I I look at who is first or second. I'm like, okay, what's the money going on? I'm like, hmm, that makes sense. And then I just sorry, but I lose interest in the middle. I just go down to the bottom. I'm like, what what weird people are being yeah. linked? Crazy, crazy <laughs> predictions. Um, yeah. So that's it, Prof. We have starting elevens and predictions. So, Prof, we've got UCD away. Um, potential banana skin Belfield Belfield Bowl I'm going to go with the no, it's same not called that anymore I'm, I'm gonna the UCD go, Bowl I'm going to go with the same team bar the fullbacks I think we need to go for it mm. so I'm going to put Farouja and Clark in I think I've been starting them in my my 11s the last few weeks but we we did wonder would he start me against Derry yeah and I think I might switch it up actually do you know what Watsy I'm going to put Watsy in for Poom. And that's that going to be creative force, taking set pieces. Um, I'm going to give Poom another chance. Bork and Gaff. It's not, like I said, squad game. No mm-hmm. one's getting dropped. But I'm going to go, I'm going to keep Bork and Gaff up front as well. And I think just get this game out of sight within 60 minutes, hopefully. I No disrespect to UCD. Famous last words. Um, we have a plus six goal difference right now, which is worth the point. But... Derry have UCD at home. I don't think we can treat... It's like say, First and foremost... They could realistically bridge this gap. First and foremost, win the game. Okay. But let's just say... 
we are comfortable in cruising at some stage. I don't think we should just play out the game and we just won't. take a three nil. I don't, it's not in our it's not in our in our blood or in we, our makeup. We did do that last year. Remember the remember the game where somebody kept asking me, "What's their have we ever won eight nil before? Four nil. Someone at, had eight at three nil, nil, and then we didn't yeah. score again the match. Yeah, someone had an eight nil bet. That's what it was. Well, let's keep the goal difference healthy. Is all I'm saying. If we do win the match, um, hopefully we will. Um, Fifteen more points to mathematically win it. So that's presuming Derry do win all their matches. Yeah. Um, interestingly, us and Derry have the same six opponents, which was pointed out today, and I find that that, that I find that nuts. I find that crazy. So it really mm. is a, a battle, Prof. <laughs> I don't even want to think about. It. We're not going to go down that road. Um, um, people are kind of pointing out. They're like, oh, imagine we hadn't conceded and talk in the last minute. But you can, you can, you can point to those moments throughout a, a thirty-six game season, just because that was recent, um, and just the fact that we're talking about Cork away, the rescheduling of that one, people are reminiscing about the three red cards. Sean Grant has refed one game since then, by the way. Um, but you're kind of looking back at that, like imagine we won that game. I know, but. We are still in a healthy position, so yes. um, yeah. Hopefully, another win Friday, and that's it. So, prof in memoriam, my dad. So um, we start with a replay. It's Alan remembers his lay father Tony uses. So you will have heard that um, in an older in memoriam. So um, we're going to start with that one, and then we have five new ones. So the five new ones, prof. We have Trevor talking about Larry Dunn, a shells player. That's actually Hannah's grandfather. Paddy remembers Sean Daly, born in Ring's End in 1919. Phelan talks about Miles Warren, who played against the Rovers 50s team. Andy Moyler, UCD manager, tells us about Andy Senior. Bo, lifelong hoops. Toffos, prof. When he said Toffos, <laughs> that brought me back. Packet of Toffos. And finally, Owen shares his fond memories of his dad, Rodney Rice, an RTE journalist. So, um, absolutely stacked and brilliant, brilliant in memoriam, prof. So here they are. Hello, Alan Eustace here, Tony's eldest son. I was brought to Rovers games since before I can remember by my mum and my dad. He converted her to the hoops before I was born, so my attendance at games from earliest childhood was guaranteed. I've told the story on this podcast before about the dispute over my name between my folks and Big Deck. But for those who haven't heard it, Deck tried to impress upon my dad how important it was that I be called Peter after Peter Eccles and was only satisfied with Alan once my folks convinced him it was for Alan O'Neill. The earliest games I can remember were in Morton Stadium, but I have to confess to not recalling much of the football. I spent more time running around in some trees behind the hill my dad and some glackens would be perched on watching the game. And if that level of disinterest in the hoops offended my dad, I bet he was horrified later when I started bringing Harry Potter books along to games in Tolka Park, utterly oblivious to what was going on on the pitch. Thankfully, he had my brother Matthew and my mom, of course, to share that fanatical love of the hoops during my own misguided youth. And he never gave up on bringing me to matches. When at last some arsehole ruined the ending of Harry Potter on the In The Stand in Tolka, I finally learned to leave the books at home and watch the football. Who knows, maybe my dad put the guy up to it. In the end, my dad's heroic efforts to kindle the rover's flame in me paid off. Maybe it hasn't quite developed into a flare as bright as Matthew's, but I will always keep a candle burning for my dad by supporting the hoops. 
while I think of it, I'd be very surprised if there aren't people on here slagging off my dad's love of Boyzone. I actually inherited that quicker than I did the football. But not only did dad persevere in bringing me all over the country over the years to Rovers matches, but he, all, he often brought me along to his own matches playing for Dollymount in the United Churches League and, bless him, even helped coach my own football team for a while. Now that would try the patience of a saint. But dad was the backbone of Marino AFC at the time and often enlisted myself or Matthew to help him with his duties as kit man. I have fond memories now of me and dad in the old clubhouse with his meticulous system of signs made with his beloved laminator and colour-coded flagpoles. His phone never stopped ringing with requests from managers looking for shorts or bibs or whatever. Speaking of my dad's phone, he had an annual ritual that at the end of a rover season he would pick a new ringtone. Highlights included Spirit in the Sky and La Bamba. And then at the start of the new season, change it back to either Build Me Up Buttercup or Ring of Fire. Another crucial part of the league kickoff was filling in all the fixtures on the calendar in our kitchen so that he could see what Fridays or Saturdays he needed to book off work. Dad was a barman, most recently in Harry Burns in Clontarf. Harry's was and remains a big rugby pub, and having tried in vain to convert colleagues and customers to League of Ireland, Dad eventually said to himself, I better learn something about this bizarre game of egg ball. He became friends over the years with Keen Healy and other rugby players who called into Harry's. We have a great photo in the house of him being towered over by the late Jonah Lomu. One sport, however, he could never find anything but distaste for was bog ball, as he and many hoopers call it. My mother's plaintive efforts to drag me and Matthew along to Dublin matches in Crow Park could not survive the bitter dispute with Thomas Davis over Talla Stadium. Dad's animosity to the GAA and all its works and all its empty promises was not helped by the fact my and Matthew's school was mad for bog ball and stick fighting, as he called hurling, which always overshadowed the sport Matthew and I both played, which was basketball. Just to be clear, Dad knew nothing about basketball. In fact, he would often loudly proclaim, now I know nothing about basketball, but, and then launch into a rant invariably about referees. He did always have a troubled relationship with referees. I'm sure someone else here will tell the story of the bald linesman, but I'll just mention a time he got away with something as a player for Dollymount. A crunching challenge in the box brought down the other team's star striker, whose vigorous appeals for a penno did not sway the oblivious referee. Even when the striker pulled down the collar of his jersey to reveal the imprint of six studs on his chest, my dad stood by, smiling angelically, and the ref played on. Dolly Mount, of course, played in green and white hoops. You can guess whose idea that was. Rovers was my dad's true love, shaded only by his love for my mum Sheila, Matthew, and myself. He was a wonderful father and family man, and a brilliant character all round. Thanks to Tifties for organising this tribute to him and to everyone who contributed their memories. Keep on hooping, Dad. My name is Trevor Dunn. I'm in Perth, Western Australia. And I've been asked to tell you about a few words about my dad, Larry Dunn, from Rings End. Well known in uh, junior football circles throughout Ireland. He was a uh, Man United scout. He was chief steward at uh, Lansdowne Road on International Day and... Cup final day. 
He was also a very accomplished player, won every Junior Cup medal and League medal that was to be won. <clears throat> and he also was an Irish Junior International captain. He also brought myself and Glenn, my brother, to Milltown from early ages in the in the 70s. I remember standing behind the goal at the away from the Milltown end, watching the games when we were very, very young. And when we got bored, we would go up to the back of the terrace and look down onto the pig farm at the back of the stadium. I wonder how many uh, supporters of a certain vintage will remember remember the pig farm that was there. We were there for all the, the big occasions, uh, league wins, cup wins. I remember being there for the, the Celtic European Cup match in 87 and the temporary stand. The noise we made on that thing, I don't know how it didn't fall down. Also there the night uh, Rovers beat United and I was there when they beat Arsenal. Really great memories and Larry, my dad Larry instilled that in us, you know, we, we used to travel, myself and Glenn used to travel everywhere with him when he was playing. Um, all over Ireland, FAI Junior Cup matches, Leinster uh, Junior Cup matches, <clears throat> brilliant times. And then on Sundays afternoons, he'd bring us up to Milltown to watch the great Rovers teams play. Being from Rings End, uh, we knew Jody Bourne, the, the, the goalkeeper at the time. And we'd stand behind the goal, have a little chat with Jody, uh, in with when there was a lull in play. Um, I remember one time, a few years after that, maybe around the year two thousand, we were over at Tolka Park for a match against Shelbourne, and there was uh, a bit of crowd congestion outside, and the guard of Mounted Unit moved in on the horses, and somebody let a shout. Mind you, nearly hit that old man, and my dad was looking around to see who the old man was. And when he realised they were talking about him, he nearly uh, caused a riot himself over that that little de description. It's very funny. I slagged him about it for years after that. Um, when Tala opened up, of course, we were always there. Um, Tala opened in 2009 and I moved to Australia in 2012. And for those first few years... We were always up there, myself and my three lads, Connor, Ronan and Aidan. Um, they were, we moved out here in 2012. So for the first few years at Tala, um, we were always up there. We were at the Real Madrid match. We were at the Sligo match, the first game there. Uh, the lads loved going and even now they'll get up early in the morning to watch on League of Ireland TV to watch Rovers. They're still all diehard Rovers fans. Um, they love love every time they go home they love going back up to Tallis Stadium for a match so it's been instilled in us for a long long time and being a Rings End family it was either Rovers or Shells and we were Rovers uh, we're related to the great Jimmy Dunn of Rovers and Ireland fame um, it's just, just in the blood and myself and Glenn have passed it on to our kids now and we all have we, we have to thank our own father Larry for that. So great memories, great times and all due to my dad Larry. Thanks for listening. Down there, uh, my name is Paddy Daly. I'd like to tell you about me, my dad, Sean Daly. He's a big Rovers fan. He got me into Rovers many, many years ago. Uh, my dad, Sean, he was born in Gordon Street in Ring's End in 1919. 
And I think now I'm not a hundred percent sure. I think his first game was an FA Cup final replay in Shelbourne Park in 1929. I think it was against Bowes. Now I'm not a hundred percent. His favorite player many years ago was would have been Paddy Moore. Not just his favorite Rovers player. He actually said he's the best footballer he's ever seen in his life. Now obviously long, long before our time, but uh, I think he's the man that scored four goals against Belgium one time. He'd other play. He'd other favorite players in latter years. Um, Johnny Fulham was m- one of his favorites. Mick Leach and Paddy Mulligan. I remember Paddy Mulligan got transferred to um, Chelsea years ago. And of course, my dad always looked out for Chelsea. Then, then he he played for Crystal Palace and West Brom afterwards, and he always looked out for those results as well. When he was younger, he went to uh, Western Road School, and there's a story going around around Rings End one time that. Um, him and Jackie Carey and a few other lads were uh, expelled at the same time for playing football in Ingsdown Park. As he got older, I think he stopped going for the, the matches with his dad and he started going with his best mate. Oh, his best mate for a long time, Kevin Bourne from Doris Street, which is just around the corner from um, Gordon Street where my dad was born. I think they attended matches uh, up until I think Kevin passed away in the late 70s, early 80s. Uh, my dad's brother, Michael. He married a, a lady from Ringsend called Katie McGuire. She used to have a famous sweet shop just opposite the Regal there. And her two brothers played for Rovers as well. Uh, Jim and Mick, if I'm not mistaken. I think actually one of them played for Ireland too. I also remember my dad telling me about the White Horse. Uh, I think he said the first time he seen it was, I think it was the 1944 Cup Final against Shelbourne. When he brought the White Horse to Dalymount. But he also brought it back to... Shelburne used to have a social club, according to me that, up at the top of Western Road. I think it's where Kennedy's pub is. And they used to bring the White Horse up there after the match to obviously to go with the Shelburne fans that were inside. He met me ma, um, Lee Moore at the time, um, in, in the 50s. Uh, she was a coachie from Enniscorty in Wexford. But when she moved up here, she met me da, and I think they got married in the fifth, early 50s, late 50s, not too sure. But... Um, my ma actually insisted on going to the matches with my dad then because he'd be gone off all, all day Sunday between the pub and the match and probably wouldn't come home afterwards. So my ma decided that she was going to go and she became a great fan for years and years. I think up to the time of her death in in um, in the 90s, she kept going to the matches all the time. Even after my dad died, she used to go with me the other time. And even my sister Mary, she used to go, she started going to the matches I think in the 70s when Mick Leach and I was playing. That she, she used to love going to the games as well. My and dad moved to Columbanus in Milltown in the 50s and it was very handy for going to the Rovers matches I suppose. Their local pub was the Nine Arches in Windy Arbor. It was a really Rovers pub. It was owned by Kenny Man, Paddy Morrison, but it was always a, oh, a Rovers pub. And my dad go down there in the morning, have a few points on the Sunday, come home, have his dinner and straight down to Milltown. My dad started bringing me around the late 60s, early 70s and I remember walking down by Hamill Scrapyard and See a lot of old Rovers fans, Muckert Doyle, Dermot Farrell, Tommy Wall, and then younger lads like Gemma Mulholland, Greg Mulholland, Dick Clark, Peter Richardson, who, and great that they all still go, and I see them at the matches regularly. I remember we used to stand on the old terrace, and before it got knocked down to make a car park, we used to stand there beside the uh, the Bovril shop, as I used to call it. And we were there for years and years, and until the knocked, until coin knocked the terrace down, I should say, and we used to go to the stand there with my man and dad. In a lot of years, when I got older, then I got very brave and started going to the shed with our, with our photographer now, Georgie Kelly, and another mate of mine, Brendan O'Neill, two great Rovers lads too. My dad used to go to the social club at Rovers after the games, actually before the games as well sometimes. 
there used to be a big long staircase at the back of the stand and up the top of that staircase there was a social club there and my dad used to play cards there, a card game called Solo and Dawn and I think there was billiards there as well and all the trophies that we won over the years they were always there that they are stocked up there. My dad worked in the P&T for years, the old Post and Telegraphs and there's a story I remember telling Les Lowe that uh, every year before the season tickets were issued um, the, mysteriously in Milltown the phones used to go down but it was actually my dad and Paddy Bourke, Willie, da, Willie Bourke's dad another fella in the exchange no drum used to knock the phones off and uh, in them days you couldn't you couldn't get a phone for love no money so my dad, my dad used to get your man in the exchange to knock Rover's phone off and then the man three season to get off Louis Kilcoyne to get them fixed quickly it was great it's the only time he ever heard of anyone get one over on Louis Kilcoyne I think my dad's favourite game would have been the 1956 cup final against Cork Athletic when we were 2-0 down with I think it was 13 or 14 minutes ago when we ended up winning 3-2. I know that goes down in the folklore of, of Rovers. And I think he, he, always liked, he always liked to cut better in the league and he sort of passed that down to me. When we won in 2019, it was one of the best days ever for me. I'd say it broke my dad's heart in the 70s when we hadn't got much of a team. Not just my dad, I'd say all the, all the, old, the old school Rovers fans. But then in 78 when Joyce came back, it was great to finally win the cup again. First cup final I've ever been to and that we won, thank God. One big thing I actually do remember about my dad, I remember coming home from school, I used to go to Western Row as well, coming home at lunchtime, and he said to me that uh, we're always after signing Pat Bourne. I think it was the first pair Jim McLaughlin signed, and he says, if we get Pat Bourne, this is, this is going to be a serious team, and Jim built this, is obviously the four in a row team around Pat, and that was super exciting at the time, and then we went on to win four in a row, and three doubles, and only UCD pipped us. Uh, he did say he had a lot of favourite Rovers teams, probably the 50s and the 60s teams that done six in a row. But he did say to me before he died that he reckons the 80s team that won the four in a row were probably the best team that Rovers ever had. Hi everybody, um, Thayla Moran here, just giving uh, my in memoriam contribution to the Tifties podcast. Thanks lads for asking me to contribute. Um, Prof actually asked me to read, read out my um, blog that I wrote in a tribute to me dad when me dad died in April 2020 um, I did a personal tribute to me dad on, on my personal blog page so it's called um, Farewell to a Football and Father so I hope you enjoy it folks I'll read it out my dad passed away peacefully 13th of April he was 86 that's a pretty good innings he battled heart failure for just over two years and made his peace with our maker some time ago so he's resting now and nobody deserved his rest more his name was Miles Warren and he loved football and he passed it on to me, and for that, and everything else he passed to me, including the stammer, I'm forever in his debt. Miles Miley Warren was reared on Crumlin's Legland Road. His neighbourhood included the literary talents of Christy Brown and Brendan Bean. Legland Road itself owned a certain musical talent named Philip Linnet, and footballing pedigrees such as Robbie Keane's maternal grandfather. Also in Crumlin, there was the Dunn brothers, who were all personally known to Dad of which Richard Dunn, of course, was the most famous of the Dunn brothers' numerous footballer sons. And Dad grew up with, and was a schoolboy friend and teammate of, Shamrock Rovers legend and Irish international Shea Keogh. More on Shea later. Dad was a decent player and all. I'm looking at his winner's medal from the 1948-49 Harry Cannon Cup, one with St Joseph's of Rathfarnham. He was clearly impressing around that time, as the following year, 1950, Dad was capped for Ireland at schoolboy level, when taking on England at Dalymount Park. England won 2-1 and a certain Johnny Haynes was in, the, in the England, was in the England team. His cap is now proudly framed on my sitting room wall. 
Dad was an accomplished fullback, comfortable with both feet. My brother Kevin inherited the dual feet asset. I used my left sparingly. And he had pace and he loved the tackle. So yeah, Dad was decent. He also played a few first-team games for Shelburne in the League of Ireland in the 50s. And I have the match programme of his appearance at my beloved Milltown, where he marked his friend Liam Toohey as Shamrock Rovers took on shells. Rovers won 3-1. Dad's friend scored twice and probably ended his first-team career at shells. One moment Dad ruefully recalls during his torrid Milltown match was when a pass went to him. He miscontrolled the ball, the ball rolled up his shin, hit his knee and descended to his foot. Whereby a shells fan scolded him. Hey Warden, it's not a fucking yo-yo. Unforgiving and humorous fans back then and all. So Wiley left Shells eventually and played at a decent amateur level with Jacobs for a few years. Where a former teammate, Tom Reeves, also known as Sean Connors, the comedian, reminded me they reached the FAI Intermediate Cup final losing to the Workman's Club 1-0. Tom tells me he was much happier playing with Miley than against him, which was a nice compliment. Dad then hung up the playing boots and went into refereeing, again progressing to a decent level in the amateur leagues. He was strict but absolutely fair and had a reputation as being the man to officiate at potentially explosive games and his years as a decent player definitely helped his transition to refereeing. Once baby number one, Miles Jr, arrived in 1962 however, followed by Kevin in 1964 and then me in 66 and finally my sister Maeve in 71, his refereeing career was confined to the household at that stage. But he got his playing boots on again in his late 30s during the summers as he lined out for his job team, Anko later to become Foss. Dad was a training advisor in apprenticeship services. And it was while playing for Anko, I got the football bug, watching him and listening to the shouting, swearing and celebrating of good, bad and indifferent players in parks such as the VEC grounds in Terenure, St. Anne's Park in Rohini, and I remember a then lengthy jaunt out to Hoth for a game. I loved going to the parks on those match nights when we always seemed to have great summers. Or maybe he only took my brothers and I on nice nights. Kicking into the nets at half-time was always a huge highlight, as we took turns in these huge goalposts, and Kevin usually beat me hands down and goal scored, before we were ushered back off the park by the usual headbanger goalkeeper, and then ordered away from the back of the goal by the ref, as we tried to hit the other side of the, of the net and annoy the keeper. Get stuck in the... we shout in our timid but compelled voices, and I longed for my own chance to play this beautiful game. At eight years of age, I get my wish. I joined local team... Newbrook Celtic. Well, Ballyboden was practically local for a Ballyrone boy like me. And I played for Newbrook Celtic for nine years at schoolboy level. Dad didn't come to every game, but those he did attend, I can recall vividly, I'm a pride and absolutely no sense of embarrassment that some parents would impinge on their impressionable child. Dad would always spectate from the opposition touchline to ensure a friendly and encouraging voice from that side. It wasn't just me he'd particularly encourage. All my teammates would be encouraged and praised in a calm but forceful voice. Mistakes were never met with, a, with scorn, merely an unlucky or don't worry about it. And if I did something well, I got appropriately praised. If I misbehaved, however, especially to send to a referee, I would hear and dread the verbal ticking off that I deserved. Dad never slaughtered me for a mistake, but a tetchy moment took me down a peg or two. He'd be always correct. If the opposition line were overstepping the mark, he'd defend our team. And I remember one opposition manager doing linesman in an under-11 game. He was clearly being dishonest and biased and Dad's words ensured it stopped. He was a scrupulously fair man when it came to football, and I like to think I learned that as I went on to coach a schoolboy team my own in Furhouse Carmel, and a Leinster Senior League team also with Turner College. Dad was a modest and unselfish man. I was lucky to achieve success as both the player and manager of those schoolboy and adult teams, and I was so proud he was there on days when success was clinched. He gave me understated but absolute congratulations, and when in, 19, and when in 2004 we wrapped up with a Leinster Senior League title, 
My first phone call was to Dad as he lay in a hospital bed following the removal of a cancerous kidney. Apart from my playing and management days, like so many people, some of my fondest memories are of matches we attended together. My first real memory is him taking my brothers and I to Lansdowne Road to see the World Champions Brazil in 1973 as they played the Shamrock Rovers All-Ireland eleven in a thrilling 4-3 win for Brazil. That game gave me the bug of attending live games. The massive green pitch, the roar of the fans, come on Ireland, the celebration of a goal, the education from Dad about the players as I hung on his every word and shout and learned from him on the nuances of the match. Countless Ireland games at Lansdowne Road were attended after that. As my brothers and as my sister Maeve got old enough and I made our way to Dad's office in nearby Carisbrook House and later Baggett Street to meet his colleagues and the excitement of the short walk to the old stadium to cheer on our country. Then a real highlight in February 1980 as we were taken to Wembley to see Ireland play England in the last Euro qualifier. Wembley was the be-all and end-all back then. Apart from maybe Celtic Park for me, he would take me there the following year for my 15th birthday to see Celtic play Juventus. And for us to be going to Wembley to see Ireland play was the biggest treat ever. Ireland played with pride and tenacity, but two Kevin Keegan goals and a dominant England saw us back to our hotel, glum but absolutely transfixed by the old Wembley. Although teetotal, admirable given he had been many years an electrician in Guinness's brewery, he wasn't found wanting in the supporters bus as the drinkers would shout up, Hey Youngflet, he was 46, give us a song, and he'd oblige with the boys from the County Armagh to great acclaim. Dad was a great man for a sing song. Although I didn't manage to meet him that day, I was delighted, delighted he got out on a day trip to Hanover with Kevin to see Ireland's one-all draw at Euro 88 against the Soviet Union. I was on a week-long package deal. He gloried in the Irish performance that night and the singing with the delirious Irish fans. As Dad aged, it became my turn to take him to games. As part of my 40th birthday celebrations in 2006, I booked us three one-day trips to Celtic's three Champions League group games. He'd no allegiance to any club team, but he knew these would be brilliant occasions and a capacity and vociferous paradise didn't disappoint. Nor did the team, as Celtic defeated Copenhagen 1-0 and Benfica 3-0 in the opening two games. This set up a clash with Sir Alec Ferguson's Man United on my dad's 73rd birthday. And dad didn't like Ferguson. Nakamura's breathtaking free-kick winning goal resulted in me almost wrestling this now 73-year-old dad of mine to the floor in delight. Dad somehow kept hold of his video camera to capture the carnage and mayhem of a European night at Celtic Park and as a DVD I will guard with my life. Dad joined in the Celtic Park choir for a truly memorable birthday for him and the most precious of memories for us both. As far as I can remember now, as Dad's mobility and stamina waned, the last game I took him to was Ronaldo's Real Madrid debut in July 2009 as they used their pre-season to play Rovers in Tala. Although a former Shells player, Dad definitely had a soft spot for Rovers down to the brilliance of Paddy Code and his outstanding Rovers team at that era. He always said Code was years ahead of his time in terms of team preparation, as they so often blew teams away in the first 20 minutes. So as I close the memory book of my dad's love affair with football, I close with two tales, one long ago and one on his passing. I remember I was five or six and I woke crying from some nightmare. Dad was soon beside me and sat me up. In that soft, soothing voice he said, Lie down there, son, and think about and imagine this. Jarzino has the ball on the left and he cuts inside the Italian defence and just in time pokes the ball to Pele. Pele doesn't panic and knows his captain is steaming up on the right. Pele rolls the ball simply but precisely into Carlos Alberto's path and he smashes the ball on the floor into the far corner and it's 4-1 to Brazil the World Cup is theirs. Happy football thoughts have sent me back to sleep. I said I'd return to Dad's old pal Shea Kyo from Crumlin and Rovers. In May 2019 when we were as always talking about football Dad wondered about his old pal and expressed a wish to see him. As I was familiar with Shay's son, James, a meeting was set up and I accompanied Dad to meet his old mate. 
I was so fortunate to hear the old football yarns about the players, the matches, the crumbling days, and it was a special hour. Dad was in decent enough physical shape that day, and he was absolutely delighted to have seen Shea Kyo again. Dad passed away peacefully 11 months later, on the 13th of April 2020. The very same day it was announced the great Shea Kyo had also passed away. In a further final fate, Miley and Shea reposed together in the same funeral home in Raffarnham. That was nice. Thanks for listening, folks. Thanks for everything, Dad. Rest in peace. How are you doing, lads? Andy Myler here. Um, just a couple of words on my dad, uh, Andy, uh, who was a, a lifelong uh, hoop supporter. Um, my dad would have been born in Northwall um, in the inner city, and then his family would have moved to Drumcondra um, from an early enough age. Um, so he would have been a, a Northside hoop all the way through. Um, his father was also a, a Rover supporter, also called Andrew. Um, and would have brought my dad to, to Milltown and um, that's where it all started for him. Uh, my dad's favourite team of all time would have been the Paddy Cole team and I think Frank O'Neill would have probably been his favourite player. Um, he would have uh, spoke about it regularly as, as we were watching teams down through the years. But he also would have said that uh, I, don't think, I don't think any team uh, that Rovers have had since surpassed that team in, 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 my, in my dad's opinion. So... Um, uh, always uh, his first love that that particular team. Um, we would have grown up in Ballymun, um, initially, and then into Coolock. So uh, Rovers fans surrounded by Bowes fans. Um, but we would have been brought to uh, Milltown from a fairly early age. Um, and uh, the joke in the house was that from from a very early age, you could tell the left and the rights that were needed from Ballymun all the way to to Milltown in the car. Um, a packet of toffos before the game in the shop I think it's a flower shop now but uh, and then brought along jumped over the gate and into the into the, onto the terrace there uh, my dad used to go to the games in Milltown uh, he worked in Chrysler and Santley, Santry and there was a, a a chap he worked with called Benny McCabe who brought all his sons to the games as well uh, and we'd stand in a group uh, every uh, Sunday afternoon and, and uh, watch the games team at that time that I remember watching from an early age is Alan Campbell, Liam Buckley, Jacko McDonough, uh, Jody Bourne, Pat Bourne, um, Neville Steedman, those guys, um, great team, great great times and uh, great to watch. Um, the sport probably would have drifted slightly when, you know, uh, Milltown was closed down and uh, there was a couple of years there where probably lost touch of it slightly but um, got really, really, really back into it around them. Um, uh, some of the later years in Tolka when I was playing there myself and uh, when I went to Tala um, where I was lucky enough to be coaching at the time um, with the club so um, he would have really reconnected with it over those years himself and his brother Tom uh, would have gone to almost every game uh, probably nearly caused about f- 500 accidents going across the M50 um, as well two 80 year olds in a car um, but got really into it and if, if you were lucky enough to sit beside them in the stand there's Good, fairly good impression of Statler and Waldorf from the from the Muppets uh, in terms of them giving out about everybody and like I said earlier it didn't matter if the teams were, were, were winning leagues they were never going to live up to the the Rovers teams gone past in their head anyway um, obviously when you, you, you grow up in a, a Rovers supporting household uh, one of my greatest memories of in, in football probably maybe even the greatest memory in football to be honest which is uh, when I was making me debut for Rovers and looking up into the stand and giving me dad a wave 
Um, just really, really great times. Proud moment for all of us in the in the the family and particularly for him as well. So, um, it was nice to be able to do that before we uh, before I finished off uh, playing. Um, my dad, he's he's passed away now, probably two years or just over two years. And um, one of the things that uh, was in the coffin was the green and white scarf uh, that he wore to the games, particularly in in Tala, um, just to to recognise that was always. One of his one of his first loves, football, Rovers, um, and anything that, and anything that went with it. And that was my dad supporting Rovers. So, um, thanks a million for that, lads. Owen Rice here to say a few words about my dad, Rodney. Um, it was my dad who started bringing me to Rovers games um, back in 1990 when the club first moved to the RDS. Uh, we'd no history of going to to Rovers uh, in the family. But I suppose going to the Ordes was a big thing. And like a lot of people uh, in the area, um, we decided to go along, I suppose, just to have a look. Um, funnily, I remember I went to school in Dundrum. And uh, I remember it must have been 1987 or 88, uh, being driven home from school by dad and seeing a sign on, the, on a lamppost for a thing called Cram and asking dad what that was about. And I remember him saying, oh, that's about a... A local football club and the supporters want the fans to stay in their stadium and uh, I don't know why I remember that because it meant nothing to me at the time uh, we'd never been to a game at that stage but just one of those uh, childhood memories that sticks with you for some reason but uh, we went to the RDS you know uh, dad wasn't uh, had no background in Rovers as I said he was actually a, a big Man United fan and um, dad was a unashamed bar stooler um, I think he, he genuinely believed football uh, was was best enjoyed from the comfort of a sofa. Uh, and um, I don't really think enjoyed the live experience of matches too much. He was a United fan his entire life. And uh, I remember in about 2002 or 2003, I thought it was so ridiculous that he'd been following United for half a century without having gone to Old Trafford that I actually bought him a ticket. So myself, himself and my brother Keane went over to a match and uh, I think he enjoyed it but to be honest I think he probably would have preferred to be watching it uh, at home on the sofa and um, I think that's just the way he, he preferred things uh, obviously we uh, disagreed uh, on that but he was United fans whole life uh, he was from Belfast um, well just north of Belfast and um, I think his dad had been a United fan I think that's how it started um, although his dad wasn't hugely into football, he was more into motor racing actually, which is a bit bizarre. But anyway, um, for whatever reason, he was he was a big United fan. Um, you know, he, he liked football growing up. Um, he he was born into a Presbyterian family um, in the north. Um, and back in those days, uh, televisions weren't switched on on Sundays, and. I remember him telling me that when Northern Ireland got to the World Cup in 1958 and did quite well, I think they got to the quarterfinals in that, in that competition, but they were due to play a game on a Sunday and it was a big uh, matter of debate in the North and in his family uh, about whether this game was going to be watched or not. And obviously as a young lad, he would have been about 14 at the time. Um, he was lobbying hard for the game to be shown and uh, he won that row and the and the, the telly was put on 
and as he said himself the, the television went on that Sunday and was never switched off on any Sunday uh, after that so I suppose football influenced his family uh, in that way but um, as I said he he, he uh, wasn't a, a match going fan but they decided himself and the mum decided to bring to the RDS um, and he went to quite a few games went, went to most games uh, for, for the RDS years um, he used to stand uh, by the hedge at the bottom of the grandstand and uh, he'd stand there with uh, people he knew from the sort of journalism and political world um, people like Ronald O'Donoghue who we worked with uh, Tony Heffern who was the, the government press secretary Pat Rabbit, uh, people like that and uh, they'd sit there and put the worlds to right um, for the 90 minutes uh, to be honest with you, I mean, I was nine at the time. I had very little interest in football. Um, I was there for the crisps and coke. Uh, and, you know, himself and his buddies would be talking about politics or what have you while they were watching the game. And uh, me and my brother and my sister and our mates would just be running around the grandstand, probably probably annoying a lot of people. Um, but yeah, Dad was a journalist um, in RTE for his his whole career, um, and had an interesting career. Um, he uh, travelled uh, to Africa a lot every year. Uh, went went all over Africa, um, which bizarrely is is something I've ended up doing in my own job. Um, and he he reported a lot from the north as well. Um, I suppose being from the north, he was kind of dispatched up there and would have been reporting around there when you know the troubles broke out and throughout the seventies and so on. Um, you know he had lots of uh, really uh, bizarre stories and very very fascinating stories about that whole time. Um, I suppose you know one that always comes to mind just because it is so unusual um, was that the night before he was to get married. Um, there was a bomb scare on the on the tracks, the, the Belfast to Dublin line. So he was in Connolly waiting for some friends or family to get the train down, but it was all delayed because of this bomb scare. So Seamus Costello uh, was uh, on the, the platform uh, beside him, also waiting for someone. Uh, Costello would have been on the Army Council of the officials uh, at the time, and, and they knew each other. Um, although I, I think Costello actually trying to kill him at one stage but anyway Shinsuke uh, Lella but um, because this train was delayed they decided they'd go for a pint uh, and, and wait and so they went across the road for a pint and uh, Costello was telling dad about how he was about to form this new group uh, the INLA um, so dad spent the night before his wedding having a pint with Seamus Costello trying to persuade him not to set up the INLA Um unsuccessfully uh, as it turns out but anyway he had <clears throat> lots of those stories and um, which were all kind of very unusual very uh, interesting uh, career and life I suppose but anyway back to the football um, we went to the RDS uh, for all those years and uh, 94 was really the season that I started actually watching the football and taking a proper interest in it as opposed to just running around um, and there was that season that I decided to move from the grandstand to the Anglesey stand uh, to join the choir, as Dad called it, uh, the singing fans. 
So we went over there, uh, myself and siblings, my friends and so on. And so from then on in, you know, we'd, we'd, we'd go to the games with dad, but we'd sort of go our separate ways then. Uh, we'd go to our respective stands uh, and meet up again after the match. Um, when the club moved to Tolka, you know, dad's interest in standing at hedges, talking about politics, uh, wasn't going to extend to going all the way up to Drumcondra to do it. So he stopped going to games at that stage. Um, but he bought a family season ticket, which allowed, I think, two or three kids into games. And he bought that so that I could go to the matches and I could bring my mates along. So um, people like Rowan McFeely, um, Nick Smith, probably John Dorney, others. Uh, we used to go up to the games on this season ticket and, uh, you know, they'd pay me whatever, 50p or whatever it was uh, when they came in just to recoup the cost of the season ticket. Although, although I don't think that ever did break even on those season tickets. But, you know, he stopped going to games, but I suppose it allowed me to go to games and he encouraged me, even though I think he was a bit suspicious, uh, it would be safe to say, of quite a few Rovers fans. Um, particularly when I started going to away games in 96 or 97 or whenever it was. Um, I remember him doing a lot of due diligence about what bus I should be going on and uh, more specifically what buses I shouldn't be going on. Um, but yeah, he encouraged it. Um, and But he didn't go to games very much at all, if ever, to be honest, uh, through the wilderness years. Um, 2003 I started writing We Are Rovers which is the, the first of the Rovers books I was involved in and uh, you know I told him about the project and he knew I was kind of doing something um, but I think he was a bit surprised when it actually happened um, and I think you know I think he was probably pretty impressed that I'd managed to actually put a book together um, a lot of work has to go into them and I suppose with his own professional background he would have known that he when we moved to Tala in 2009 I got himself and my mum tickets to the first game uh, so that was a nice thing to do in the sense that they'd brought me to my first game and got me involved in the club so it was nice to be able to bring them to that game um, and even though they weren't hugely uh, you know, um, they weren't match-going fans at that stage. You know, they knew what it what it meant, and they knew what what it meant to me and to the club. So, they were very happy to go to that. Um, like he he stopped going to games, but he he'd watch them on telly, he'd follow the results, he'd read the match reports. So he knew who was playing for the club. He knew what was going on, and you know we talk about it all the time. Um, you know he'd ask me about Rovers and, um you know, sit there and listen, as I told him. Um, I'm not sure how interested he was in a lot of those conversations, to be honest, but, you know, in return, I let him talk about United, even though I wasn't particularly interested, but I suppose in the sense that fathers and sons and lads in general generally talk about football, um, you know, it was the the biggest topic of conversation between us probably over the years. Uh, the last game he ever went to was the 2019 Cup Final, um, where we ended the drought uh, and beat and dog on penalties. 
and that was great obviously we didn't know it was going to be his last ever game but uh, it was a hell of a way to go out I suppose um, and we brought uh, Conlon my nephew uh, who has been to a few games since um, my own son was was too young to go but it was nice to be able to share that uh, that game and that sort of historic feat of ending the drought uh, with dad and, and with, with my nephews and sort of three generations um, and I suppose that's a a kind of a legacy uh, that he leaves in the sense that he he's the one who, who started bringing us two games and uh, and hopefully we can continue uh, continue the tradition Superb stuff Rob. Um Larry Dunn a footballing icon around <clears throat> Dublin uh, Man United well, scout everything he had well known known figure. Yeah, well, well known, known figure yeah. um, Paddy from Colin Bannis where my mother and all her family are from as well so some good stuff from Paddy Talking about his jaunts up and down to Milltown as a child. A lot of good, like, a couple of them weren't Rowers fans. But a lot of good football people involved in this one. Um, coming from Go Football Stock. Um, Owen Royce was kind of the exception. His dad was like a, a renowned journalist. But really interesting one in his own right. And... You know, you know how I feel about Owen Royce. I could listen to him talk. I could re- listen to him read the phone book. Yeah, he's yeah, that sort yeah, of yeah. voice. Um, but yeah, I uh, I really enjoyed uh, the latest installment of Memory. My dad, got possibly the last one. Um, if if you're listening to this, if a few people get in touch with me and say I would like my dad featured, then of course we will Absolutely, do another one. Yeah. But we might leave it there for the time being. It's been brilliant. Really, really good, one. and just. It gives you a nice warm feeling. Really, really good segment. So, um, that was Alan News, it's Trevor Dunn, Paddy Daly, Phelan Warren, and Andy Moyler, and Owen Royce. So, Prof, that brings us to an end to this week's show and um, another big, big week of fixtures. We've got the bowl, we've got UCD away. There you have Sligo away, so a potential banana skin for them. With Sligo winning 2 0 on the weekend, so that's out, they're out of the funk, you could say. They're out of the bad form that they've been in. Sligo actually did beat Derry last time out, remember? 1 0. They remember they're on bad form, and they actually shocked them on the. It was on a Sunday. I know, yeah. that's exactly what or I was thinking Saturday. myself. So you never know, there is going to be a couple of crazy results being thrown up. And um, yeah, so that is it for this week, Prof. We will see you in the bowl. So keep on hooping. See ya. In Napoli, where love is king, when boy meets girl, here's what they say. When the moon hits your eye like a big pizza pie, that's amore. When the world seems to shine like you've had too much wine, that's amore. Bells will ring, tingle-ling-a-ling, tingle-ling-a-ling, and you'll sing Vita Bella. Hearts will play tippy-tippy-tay, tippy-tippy-tay, like a guitar and when the stars make you drool Just like a pastefazool That's amore 
When you dance down the street With a cloud at your feet You're in love When you walk in a dream But you know you're not dreaming Signore Excuse me But you see back in old Napoli That's amore